That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Gonzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Gonzano's Bald Face Truth. <laughs> BFFT. Now, built by high caliber millwrights, in for John Gonzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the Bald Face Truth. My career, you know, is a lot. You know, um, I feel like everything happened for a reason. You know, everybody knew my story, so it's like, you know, I mean, I've been through a lot. You know, I, I've been, in, I've had ups and downs. You know, but, you know, I'm thankful for it all. You know, um, I'm super blessed. You know, obviously, to meet Coach DeBoer at Indiana, to lead me here, um, to be playing for the biggest game in college football. You know, but obviously, we didn't come out how I wanted to, but I know that each and every player on this team, you know, they, they gave it their all, and, you know, um, it wasn't enough today, you know, and for for me, I'm going to take accountability for the offensive side of the ball. I feel like we could have did better, you know. Um, too many penalties, you know, I, and we had a lot of offsides, and I'm put that on me because I got to be louder. I got to, you know, make sure I, I'm great with my communication and stuff like that, so my offensive line is you know, um, you know, hearing ghosts, you know, it's just, um, I don't know, I'm, it's, it's been a long one, but man, I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be here. I'm blessed to be on this team. And, you know, these guys will be my brothers forever. Welcome into the program, Baldface Truth. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn in for John Canzano. John will check in in a little bit. Got some, uh, Travel uh, complications extraordinaire coming back from Houston, and he uh, he is not alone. But uh, John will be part of the show coming up uh, here in a little bit. Michigan takes care of Washington in the national championship game. What your reaction? 503-417-7575. As you heard from Michael Penix Jr. at the top of the show right there. Duck fan, are you relieved? you got to be honest. you got to be a little bit relieved that your rivals to the north didn't win the national championship and they don't have that to lord over you as you go into the big 10 conference come on duck fan i know you feel relieved how can you not from that one you can chime in at 503-417-7575 similarly beaver fan the same way and just college football fans like how do you feel about the huskies coming up short especially the manner in which they came up short steven we came into the game saying that they knew they got to be explosive on offense washington but we both picked Michigan to win and potentially cover that game in large part because of their ability to run the football and dominate the trenches. And early, that is exactly, exactly what happened. Washington had no answer for Michigan's run game. Ended up 
historic proportions on the ground for Michigan in this one. Uh, more rushing yards than anybody in a national championship game ever. And the first half was a large reason why. I still was really impressed with the way that Washington hung tough defensively in this game. I thought that Michigan would run away with it, literally. And the Huskies, man, they still made big plays on defense when they had to. And the offense let them down. And the offense has rarely, if ever, let them down this year, except for maybe a time or two. But guess what? They haven't lost those games. They haven't lost since October of 2022, 21 games ago. And now they have. They lost. That win streak is snapped. Jim Harbaugh is a national champion. Jim Harbaugh gets over the mountain. The Mason Blue is uh, basking in glory for the first time since 97, and it's a Michigan world that we're living in in the world of college football. 503-417-7575. As that game unfolded, though, Stephen, so much of what we talked about, and you and I were in large alignment going into this one, picking Michigan to win for this exact reason, ended up manifesting. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm almost never right about these things. I hate to I hate to admit how right how right we were, but we yeah. were pretty right on this game. I mean, pretty right, right on, on this know, one. JJ McCarthy, 18 passes in the entire game. Michigan, 38 runs for 303 yards. Like they really just lined it up, and they said, "We're going to run down your throats, Washington, and we're going to slow it down, and we're going to make it so Michael Penix Jr. has to score every single time." And he didn't. And even with that, Michigan gave. Washington some chances. Yeah. You know, we talked about how important it would be, you know, if you win the coin toss, what to do. Well, Washington defers in the second half. It almost played out exactly perfectly how they wanted. Washington down by 14 points. They go down, they force uh, you know, the fourth down. Michigan doesn't get it. Washington goes down, scores a touchdown, cuts it to one score, gets the ball after halftime, first pass intercepted by, you know, Penix throws that pick off that deflected ball, but it almost worked out where Washington got right back in the game. And even with that, you know, you got to give Washington's defense some credit. Even though they gave up over 300 yards passing, there was a lot of moments in the second half, especially the third quarter, I thought, where Washington's defense stood tall and really put a stop to Michigan's offense and gave that Washington offense a chance to get back in the game. It never seemed fully over until that final interception by Michigan. Like, Washington was always in the game, and that's how they played all season long. They were playing close games. You wanted to keep it close and let Penix do his thing, but... That Michigan defense, Judah, we talked about it. It's going to be the toughest defense that Michael Penix Jr. faced all season long, and that's what it was. I thought Penix was solid, but he looked a little, I would say, spooked in the pocket. Like He he just wasn't as comfortable as he was against Texas when he was throwing those deep balls. You saw the couple throws, the throw to a, overthrow to a Dunze in the first half. Those are throws that Michael Penix, we've seen him make all season long, even when he wasn't healthy. He was making those throws, but... He just looked a little antsy in the pocket, and that was you got to give a lot of credit to that Michigan pass rush. We said it was going to be huge. Can they get pressure on Michael Penix? They did, and I thought Penix was just a little jumpy in the pocket. Maybe it was just a little nervous combination of both. But uh, you know, I thought it was a well played game by both teams. Uh, I just thought Michigan was the better team going into the game, and I think going out of the game, there's no doubt about it that Michigan just was the more talented and better team than Washington. And now the conversation turns to, well, what do we do with the cheating? Right. What, what what do we do with the cheating? Like, the, did that play a role? To what degree did it impact anything on the field? Or are there just other programs doing the cheating that aren't getting caught? And Michigan was the only one that that got caught. But then, how do we, you know, treat this national championship? When will the NCAA get get around to investigating this with any degree of urgency or teeth? And will there also be any impact? Will there be? any vacation vacation of wins 
or or will Michigan's national title be compromised in any of this? Probably not, and we also won't know for another, what, five, six years, knowing the snail's pace the NCAA is used to going with these types of things. But I am curious in the mind of the college football fan, when you're watching that game last night and Michigan is dominating Washington for a good swath of it, even though I was still looking and seeing that score, and I'm like, is it still 20 to 13? It's still 20 to 13. It's still 20 to 13. And Penix in Washington offensively had every chance in the world to get in that game, and they couldn't. So credit to Michigan offensively, but also worst time of the season for UW to have a letdown offensively at the same time. Well, there was a couple moments even in the first half, Judah, where we looked at each other and said, this is kind of a ball game right here for Washington. Like They need to convert this, and they didn't. The ball to Adunze where he's wide open, that's a fourth down. Yeah. And and what, seven? They went for it on fourth and seven. in the first half, they're down, and we kind of said, like, man, this this is kind of over if he doesn't get it. And and Washington, to their credit— they hung tough. They hung tough, man. That's what they and that that's what they did all season long. It didn't matter how injured or how bad they got down, whatever it was. Even the game against Arizona State, I always referenced where they didn't score an offensive touchdown. They battled and they did it right to the end. This, this Michigan team was just too good, but uh, you know you got to give Washington a lot of credit for that. The fact that they stayed in this game, even though it seemed like in the first half Michigan was all over the place, all over them. It seemed like it should have been two, three score game, and it was a one score game going into the half. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. We'll check in with John Canzano a little bit later on as well on his uh, return trip back from Houston. But at the same time, was there any part of you watching that game that felt that uh, we're watching a cheating program win? Is there any part of you that that felt that? I didn't feel that way myself, but I also know that there's room for that conversation to be had only because. They did. Uh, they did get caught for cheating, and they are the team that wins it all at the end. It's a lot different than the Houston Astros in baseball in that situation. And I still, to this day, hold contempt for the Astros. How about the game being played stuff. in Houston, though? That's pretty fun. That's actually, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm sure there were Astros and uh, in, in Michigan, you know, uh, personnel trying to steal signs in the game. They're last just banging night. garbage cans banging on, gar- the, on the sidelines. That's side what I heard. That's yeah. the sound I heard in the background there. But curious what you thought watching as a viewer at 503-417-7575. Let's go out to Bruce in Portland to start us off. Hey, Bruce, what would you think? Hey, guys, good afternoon. Obviously, being a lifelong Duck fan, I couldn't be more happy with the way things ended last night. Um, I knew Michigan's defense was tough. But they were number one, number two in the country. Washington really hasn't faced a defense like that. Um, but kudos to uh, – I thought Washington would have made it closer. You know, um, Penix was off all night. You saw a missed ball to Aduze, you know, some of those balls that got knocked loose by Michigan's secondary. I mean, those guys are tough. Um, and then Michigan, you know, pound, pound and grind on the ground. Uh, that being said, what, they just set a bowl championship. Bowl's final record, 303 yards rushing that Washington gave up. The Ducks had the previous record of 296 against Ohio State. So it's good to get that one off the books for Washington fans uh, with the four-bowl, you know, the four-game playoff coming to an end. Um, I really thought Washington would have made it closer, though. I mean, they had all the momentum going into the half after that quick touchdown score, you know, right before half. And then a weird deflection, miraculous pick, you know, kind of swung Mo back to Michigan, and they never looked back. Um, I think the whole cheating thing is going to be forgotten in a few years. Look what happened at New England, too. I mean, nobody's going to care in a, in a couple more years outside of Michigan haters. But uh, kudos to Michigan, and I think Harbaugh's going to the Chargers. <laughs> Where's Jim Harbaugh going next? I think the Chargers are on the short list. Would that be good for Justin Herbert? 
By the way, if you're Herbert, look out for that uh, Jim Harbaugh quarterback confidence uh, smack. Remember how he used to do that? I don't think he's done that anymore. But with Kaepernick, he used to always get in Kaepernick's face on the sideline before the game, bring both hands into the air and just pound his shoulder pads. Boom, boom, boom. And, like, that was the way to, like, instill confidence in his quarterback. I don't know. Herbert seems taller than Kaepernick. I don't think that Harbaugh would be able to reach his shoulders Harbaugh's a big dude, though. He is a tank. No khakis last night. He's going, I, he's classy. Did, did I, is he really? I don't know. Getting ready for the NFL? I don't know. He's been different this year ever since they got you know the whole suspension thing. He's yeah. been, he's been, I I tell you what the whole cheating thing. Look, I get it. They got caught cheating. You don't care. I don't care. Um, I think that I would argue. I blame the whole Michigan program on how dumb they are to get caught cheating. I really think that all of these teams are pushing the rules. They're pushing the boundaries to try to get a you know an unfair advantage. And I think Michigan did it in a way where they lent themselves to get caught. And then Harbaugh being Harbaugh is very unlikable. I always loved Jim Harbaugh. I've always liked him. And so for me, like, it doesn't bother me, but I get why a lot of people would be mad about it. It's the combination of Harbaugh just being Harbaugh and then the fact that they did get caught in such a dumb way and how they did it is just was so bad. But I really don't care, and I'm with the caller. Like, I think in a couple of years – Nobody's going to worry about that because Harbaugh's going to be gone. It's going to be a brand new, you know, team and a brand new uh, staff there at Michigan. Harbaugh will be in the NFL, so I think in a couple of years we'll forget about it, and uh, it'll just be one of those things like, oh yeah, remember they did get suspended, but it didn't matter. Harbaugh coached in the final game. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. John Kazano will join us coming up in our second segment this hour in about ten minutes. So be here for that. Let's go out to Tiger. John's in Tiger. What do you think of the game, John? Well, I don't know. I'm I'm a beast, and I I hold a lot of respect for the Pac-12, and I would have loved to have had the Pac-12 show up all of the other conferences and win the national championship, as much as I hate to say it with anybody like the Dogs or the Ducks or anybody else. But you cannot have a team that has no running game that can win a national championship. And the fact that they beat the Ducks twice, albeit close, uh, meant that they were still a more complete team, you know, than, than what we had. And so I just think, you know, it's Michigan was just a really tough team to have to beat when you are only a one-dimensional offense, even if you're Michael Penix and you can throw, you know, great throws as a quarterback. If you're stuck with throwing, you don't have a chance. And that's why he got picked off, right? So yeah. that's just the liability. And I, you know, I, I made that prediction yesterday, and it's not a hard prediction to make. I just said Michael Penix will be picked off in this game, like only because you know he's just going to be a little bit more uncomfortable than he has in pretty much any you know game of significance, especially you know the games that he was hurt. He was hurt for so much of the year since the Oregon game, the first one. Honestly, I'm still surprised that he looked as good as he did in Vegas. That's the game that still kind of I shake my head. I was like. And Oregon was favored by, you know, nine and a half, ten points. I thought it would be a close game, but I still thought Oregon would win. They came out so flat. Washington came out so sharp. Um, You know, they played the Apple Cup. I think the Apple Cup was on a Saturday. So Washington had the short week. Oregon had the full week to get ready for a Friday conference title game. And for Washington to come out at more sharp than Oregon out of the gate, was real. I mean, that to me, that's really disappointing. Obviously, Oregon didn't lose the game with the way they started. Uh, they came back and took the lead in the third quarter, but it didn't help. <laughs> and then they lost their, you know, some of their most impactful 
secondary, you know, players, and then Penix carved them up there. I don't know what to make of Oregon. That's the other kind of B-level conversation I'm having in my head right now. The 2023 Oregon Ducks. Yesterday I was saying, man, Stephen, was this a top four team in the country? And, you know, it's a conversation starter. And just saying, could have they could they have held their own with the other teams in that playoff field? Could they have held their own with a Michigan or a, you know, Georgia, if you think Georgia was a top four team, or a Texas or um, an Alabama? And so much of me wants to say yes. And then I thought about it a little bit more, and I'm like, Every time we've needed to see Oregon prove it in a prove-it moment, I shouldn't say every time. The Utah game on the road, they proved it. The Utah game at home last year, I guess they proved it. But there have been a lot of prove-it scenarios for the Ducks to muscle up and prove it in which they did not. And I guess it really comes down to the Washington games. But it really just brings into focus, like, man, I don't know if sometimes I inflate what the Ducks are capable of a little too much I don't know if they'd be able to handle that Michigan team last night, even though I think Oregon was a pretty physical team this year. May, maybe Michigan. We talked about how open this field was for the national championship, and if it was a 12-team tournament, how maybe you know a 7-8 seed can make a run. Maybe we were wrong. Maybe Michigan was that good, and they just had so much going on around them. They had a couple close games. They didn't really play a lot of hard teams. They played at Penn State, and then they played Ohio State, and that was basically That's, it. That was it. But then they go and they beat Alabama after, you know, really, they should have been dominating Alabama at halftime. They weren't, and then they blew. But Alabama wasn't good enough. But Alabama kind of wasn't good enough. And or, now Washington, know, It's not the typical Alabama. Right. And now you look at Washington, like, Michigan dominated that game from start to finish. So maybe Michigan was just better than everybody, but I I, I don't know. The... the this game makes me think, like, is it the players at Oregon? Is it the coach? Like, what? what well, is the difference? It, let me, what is let the me, difference? Because yeah. what, Oregon looks so good against every other team. Going into that Pac-12 tournament, or Pac-12 tournament, Pac-12 championship game, they were, what, nine-and-a-half-point favorites because they were dominating everybody. Dominating. Like, not just winning, dominating. And then they looked so bad against Washington. What is it about that matchup? Is it just... They can't get over the hub. Is it the coaching? Is it Dan Lanning versus DeBoer? Is it something like that? I don't know. And that's what I would love to know. Well, I, I'm still shaking my head at what Bucky Irving did that game, you know? Right, right. Looking like at what, looking what, three the, yards te- carry what Texas and what Michigan did to the defense, yeah. how they ran the football, how Oregon could not run the football so, in that Pac-12 title game. I think that's a great point. You know, we got to figure out exactly what kind of offense Oregon has. And, and we're going to figure it out a little bit more with a new quarterback uh, in, in Dylan Gabriel coming in. But I was looking, you know, in social media and Twitter, you take it with a grain of salt. Um, but Jeff Schwartz always points out good stuff because, A, you know, he played for the Duckies uh, and played in the NFL. I value his opinion highly on what he sees. He watches tape, which is a rare thing for people to do these days, apparently. Um, but he makes a good point. Oregon's run game is so RPO-based that it's based on looks and favorable, you know, boxes, light boxes. Do you have five in the box. You have six in the box, right? That's considered a light box. That's a favorable run look. You can check to that run look. And against those favorable looks, you can, you know, run with effectiveness. And if you don't get a favorable look, you take the pass part of the pass option. Well, Michigan said the hell with that. We're going to line it up and we're going to shove it down your throat. It doesn't matter what look we're going to get. And by the way, they're good at that because they, they've got the dudes and they've got the scheme. They got the commitment and uh, they've got the the consistency and the relentlessness. Oregon doesn't have that. Oregon doesn't have that. Oregon has a predominantly RPO-based run game. 
which could absolutely still be effective, especially in the league that they were playing in. But I think that's an interesting part of it. The league that you're going to, do you think you might want to develop a more at-you-run game, a more we-just-run-it-when-we-want-to-run-it type of run game? I think that's something to consider because the defenses you're about to play in this conference are a little bit different, even though it was an up year for the Pac-12, an up year for defense in general this past season. It's a good point because McCarthy, you saw that he could run the football. Like, he's a decent enough athlete to run the football, but he only had four carries in the game. Like, they didn't look to have McCarthy run the football. It was basically, we're going to hand it off to Blake Corum, Donovan Edwards, and we're just going to let them go. Like, we're going to go one-on-one with you and try to beat you with the running backs. We're not even going to try to do... Go out of the box and confuse you. I still you. thought they could have thro- uh, run it more. Honestly. I agree. I agree. <laughs> they threw it 18 times, and I was like, man, they threw it a lot. And again, I felt like they were going to show it until they throw it more. I mean, this but... was old-school Stanford-style no. football. Like, line it up, give it to Toby Gearhart, and just go. Like, it, di- it didn't matter. That's what they felt like. And it is interesting to think about the Ducks and the way that they do it. Like, is that a style that they should go with? You know, Landon gets these you know big-time recruits, and it's getting bigger and better athletes. Like, that's the yeah. thing. So maybe they're going to transform to a little more to, hey, we're not going to do this RPO. We're going to just run the ball down and throw it Big Ten style football. I don't know if it works, but maybe that's something interesting to look forward to. When we come back, we'll check in with John Canzano. Uh, making his way back from Houston. Get his thoughts on last night's title game and a lot more. And you can call in, too, at 503-417-7575. Judah Newby, Stephen Fawn on The Bald Face Truth. To the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, it's been a whirlwind 24 to 48 hours for certainly Michigan fans, Washington fans as well, and uh, for our own John Canzano, who is making his way back from Houston and NRG Stadium. He's on the line with us right now. Jude Anubi and Stephen Vaughn here with you on the Bald Face Truth. How you doing, John? What's uh, what's the latest for you? Well, I got to tell you, the Houston airport this morning, and people who have been flying in the last couple of days will relate to this, you know, just because of what happened with that Boeing uh, 737 MAX 9 the other day in Portland, there's just a backlog of grounded planes that are being inspected and some flight crews that are not where they should be because their flights got delayed or whatever. And so it caused a big problem kind of leaving Houston today as a lot of uh, Husky fans were delayed and uh, a lot of Michigan fans were delayed. I, um, I'm currently in San Francisco. It's not the airport I was supposed to fly through. And uh, I will... Uh, be uh, landing this evening in uh, Portland. I'm happy to be home, but uh, I had planned to be on air. My original flight was supposed to be in right around middle of the day, I have, I, and I left my hotel. It was dark. In fact, I caught an Uber. This is a really interesting story. I caught an Uber to the airport with a Michigan fan because uh, there was a shortage of Ubers, too. There's just so many fans, and got a chance to kind of talk with a Michigan fan about, you know, he grew up in Ann Arbor, and he said, you know, he thought that Michigan would not win another national championship, and Jim Harbaugh wasn't the guy even a couple years ago. And so I think for fans, uh, you know, across college football, it got me thinking about programs that stick with a coach, even if a coach has a disappointing year or, you know, doesn't have a breakthrough. Harbaugh certainly was struggling with Ohio State, but his last three years he has been lights out. Yeah, that he has. I imagine a delay in flights 
was handled a little bit differently by a Washington fan than it was a Michigan fan. <laughs> what kind of attitudes uh, were you sensing across the spectrum yesterday? Well, even right now, um, you know, I can see some Washington fans in the San Francisco terminal that are, are connecting through here on their way to Seattle, and they're still sporting their gear. I think the Washington fans are still saying, hey, it's a nice season. It was a great run. With, there's nothing wrong with 14-1 and one and playing in front of everybody in a national championship game. And, you know, it's like uh, Lord Alfred uh, Tennyson said, you know, is it uh, it's better to have loved and lost than never loved, right? Like, you know, is it better to have played for a national title and got beat or never got there in the first place? And I, so I think, you know, it's bittersweet because there's no Michael Penix Jr. next year, and so I think some Washington fans are probably concerned. But certainly, Kalen DeBoer in his second season, winning 14 games is uh, way better than the Jimmy Lake era. Yeah, I've had that feeling at the airport going home from Vegas when I lose all my money and I'm just, you know, I'm happy to get there, <laughs> then I'm sad to leave because yeah. I uh, lost all my money. So I know what they're feeling. I know what the Washington fans are feeling like. Uh, John, we were talking about this in the first segment. Yeah. In the Pac 12 title game, Oregon seemed to struggle to run the football against this Washington defense. And then we look at the you know, cultural playoff games. Texas runs all over them. Michigan sets a record, 303 yards, eight yards a carry. What is it that Oregon's offense couldn't figure out against Washington's run defense? Because that seemed to be the key in the game of how Oregon couldn't beat them both times. Is that they just couldn't get the running game quite going, especially that Pac-12 title game. Is there something that we're not seeing in this Oregon offense that has struggles with the Washington defense? Yeah, I think the, you know, the Oregon offense to me didn't, wasn't as physical at the point of attack as Washington was. Like it was really, it was really interesting to kind of watch the line of scrimmage, and you could see it on television. But you know, I in in the stadium, especially in the press box, you have the view of all 22 from up in the press box, right? And so you could see that those offensive linemen from Michigan in the early part of the game, there were some there were some gap assignment issues and. You know, after the game, one of the Washington uh, offensive or defensive linemen said that they addressed that in the second and third quarter, and maybe that explains why, you know, they kind of got stingy. But uh, there was a point in the game where I was really confused. Like, why was Jim Harbaugh throwing the ball? Like, you know, they were having so much success running the football. Felt like Michigan, if they wanted to, they probably could have won that game a little more handily. And and uh, I just think they were the better team the more I look at it. Do you think that could be a problem going next year to the Big Ten with a different style of play for Oregon, that it may be a little more physical than we're expecting it to be? Yeah, I, th I was thinking about the style of play. And even though the Pac-12 has got some teams that want to play more physical, like you know Utah this season wanted to be physical, and Oregon State and Oregon, you know, more physical, bigger players, it wasn't the physicality that we saw last night in that championship game. That, that was next level. And Penn State's going to have that. Ohio State's going to have that. You know, Oregon's going to need to be prepared for that. And I think Oregon will because, you know, if there is one team in the conference that can recruit and, and maybe some, recruit some bigger bodies, it's Oregon. But if I'm Washington or I am UCLA or even USC – you know, I'm kind of looking at that game last night and going, gosh, you have to make an adjustment uh, with the kinds of players you recruit. Yeah. What did you make of Michael Penix Jr.'s performance? How much of it was just getting roughed up and how much of it was, you know, him struggling in and of himself? I think uh, a lot of it had to do with the pressure he was getting. His eyes weren't where they were supposed to be. When he missed uh, Roma Dunze down the field on what would have been, you know, a big seven-point play, 
you know, I went back, I watched the replay, you saw it, he was on his back foot, you know, he was worried about getting hit, and, you know, by the end of the game, I think he was pretty banged up, we could all see that, um, you know, I was behind the scenes last night, you know, when the teams went back to the locker room, Dylan uh, Johnson had his foot in a boot again after the game, like, there's a serious injury there with his foot, and Penix, Looked like he could barely walk at the end of the game. And there were some questions about, you know, should Kalen DeBoer have put those guys on the field in the second half? And I think he probably he knows his team better than we do. But I think Penix, that pass rush got to him. They didn't protect him like they had in the past. And I don't think he liked getting hit. Dan Landing was on the ESPN set. Uh, I'm not sure if he was, uh, you know, elusive in his presence at Houston. Uh, what did you make of all that? A lot of people you know, uh, kind of reacting to Dan Lanning making himself available on that national broadcast? Well, I mean, from an ESPN standpoint, he's the most qualified person in the country to talk about Washington. You know, he played him twice. And, you know, before coming to Oregon, he'd been in a college football playoff championship game as the D coordinator at Georgia. So I get why ESPN wanted him there. And for Oregon, like, there's so much of what Oregon does is it's rooted in brand, right? Like, it's all about brand. Even the bowl game. You know, they played this bowl game against Liberty. So much is made of Bo Nix coming back, Brandon Dorless playing, Bucky Irving playing. In the end, it really just comes back to Oregon's brand, right? Oregon's guys wanted to play. Oregon's guys saw the season through. Oregon won that bowl game in convincing fashion. It's all tied to brand. So I think Dan Lanning was, you know, probably the right guest to have on. And I think, you know, he's thinking about getting some face time, getting some exposure, and getting in front of even more recruits. And I don't think that's bad for Oregon as much as as much as much some Oregon fans are going, you know, we don't want our guy talking about Washington. We want him playing in the game. Well, the, the next best thing is, is to not have him hidden on game day. Uh, as far as Oregon State is concerned, Trent Bray still putting things together, his roster together, getting some additions. I saw Jam Griffin <laughs> might be coming back from Ole Miss back yeah. to Oregon State. What do you make of you know the state of things as Trent Bray is trying to get that up and going? Well, think about what Oregon State has faced in the last since August. Really, uh, they faced chaos. It's uh, it's volatility. It's uncertainty. Everybody's anxious. And so it's really interesting to me to watch them. You know, Oregon State hires Trent Bray, known quantity, guy who went to school there. He turns around, he hires Ryan Gunderson and Keith Hayward as his offensive and defensive coordinators, two guys who know the campus. Kyle Devan, the offensive line coach, former Beaver. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing them grab some familiar faces and recruit some familiar players like Jam Griffin. They're losing guys through the portal, and so I don't blame them for going out and going, look, let's bring a guy back who knows who we are, who knows where he fits. He was a good player when he was at Oregon State. He, um, you, know, you talk about the depth that Oregon State could have in the backfield next season. It's, I think it's pretty impressive, but I, I like that they're going for some familiar known quantities because they need more of that. There's so much uncertainty there. We're talking to John Canzano here on the Bold Face Truth. Uh, got a, a caller or two that want to ask you a question, John. So let's yeah. uh, let's do that. Let's do it. Joe let's is do it. in Eugene. What you got, Joe? Afternoon, John. Hey, I had a question. Didn't uh, Oregon State and Washington State just get a uh, uh, the rest of the monies that were in the coffer of the Pac-12 because everybody else was leaving? Yes. Yeah, they're getting. So it's two. There's two 
there's two honeypots, so to speak. One of them has $190 million in it, and it's the NCAA tournament revenue. It's the college football playoff revenue. And, and that $190 million will be spread out over six years. It includes the Rose Bowl uh, payments from the playoffs. The playoffs has to pay the Rose Bowl $50 million a year in the next two years. Uh, Oregon State and Washington State are getting that whole $190 million. There's another $65 million in another pot that is going to be paid over the next two years. And that is $6.5 million per school. The 10 departing schools are paying $6.5 million each. So, yes, Oregon State and Washington State are going to have $255 million to live off. And, and I think they're going to need it because, you know, they're going to get a little Mountain West Conference media money. It's built into their scheduling partnership with the Mountain West Conference. They'll be on Fox and CBS in those road Mountain West Conference games. But Oregon State now has seven home games it needs to sell, including the Civil War. And, it, you know, it, it's probably going to shop those around to ESPN, Fox, and some others. The Oregon game is certainly really attractive, but there's some other games that are probably not that attractive. I don't, you know, I don't know if they'll bundle them or they'll sell them a la carte. And Washington State's got six games that they need to go sell. So you're going to need that hundred. You're going to need that $255 million because, you know, Oregon and Washington are going to the Big Ten Conference and, you know, they're going to they're gonna make $35 million next year in their media rights deal. And, so Oregon State, Washington State will draw upon those two uh, those two revenue streams and and try to balance you know their budget and their expectations. Did it kind of feel like the end of an era or like the end of a of a of a part of college football's history in the building last night? And by that I mean you got widespread migration of conferences: Ducks, UCLA, USC, UW. Harbaugh's situation, a certain finality just feels imminent there. And this is the end of the 14 playoff, you know, and, and next year there's the expanded playoff. Did, did it feel that way being around, you know, media types and, yeah. and other executives last night? Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of conversation about that. Like at halftime, I was talking, you know, with Dennis Dodd of CBS and Brett McMurphy, who people have read, you know, and they were asking me a lot of questions about Oregon State and Washington State and kind of what the plan is and what the feeling is. And, yeah, there was a definite feel. Like, so much ended last night. Like, Washington's 21-game win streak ended. Michael Penix Jr.'s college career ended. Um, the Pac-12 played its last game as we know of the conference. You know, the conference will go on, but it, the last Pac-12 game as we know it was last night. George Klyovkov was on the field wearing Washington Husky sneakers. Like, it was just – there was a weirdness to it. And, you know, I've been sad all year, and I think a lot of people have been, because I, I don't think it should be ending. And so I've been kind of been sad about it all season long, and last night was just another, you know, like the Pac-12 championship game, it was another reminder that, hey, this thing is ending. And, and Kalen DeBoer talked about it. He said he, he thought it was sad that the Pac-12 was over, but then he was like, but we're moving on. You know, and, I, you know, I saw a lot of people on social media saying, if you were that sad, you maybe you could have done something about it. Like, maybe you could have raised your voice, but... Um, you know, there was an end to things last night, and certainly what comes out of that, though, is always a beginning. Uh, I, I left the stadium thinking about the thing you brought up. Do Oregon and Washington have to change the style of play? Will UCLA be able to compete? What's going to happen to USC? What about Cal and Stanford and the ACC? What happens to those two schools? You know, will they eventually come back to the West? How about Utah, Arizona, Arizona State, and Colorado? How fast and how dominant will they be in the Big 12? And, and then, of course, what happens to Oregon State and Washington State? So 
you know, it was an ending last night and then a whole bunch of beginnings now today. We kind of thought this season, if it was a 12-team playoff this year, that you know maybe a team could have made a run, whether it was you know, an 18, 19, something like that. Was Michigan just the best team of the nation and we just didn't see it because of the competition that they played all season long? Or do you think if there was a 12-team playoff, there is a, you know, a good chance that Michigan could have got knocked off by you know a 12-seed or something like that? Yeah, I think I think it was a wide open year, and you know, Michigan last night reminded me, and Duck fans may may have had this spot watching the game. It reminded me a little bit of the 2015 game with Ohio State. You know, Ezekiel Elliott and Cardell Jones and Ohio State just kind of peaked at the end of that year, and by the end of the season, they were the best team in the country. There were times this year I watched Michigan, and I wasn't that impressed. And I, you know, I've obviously picked, I thought Washington would win the game. But once, you know, that first quarter was going, I mean, I don't think anybody in the stadium was, was picking Washington because of the way Michigan was moving the ball. So I just think it would have depended on, you know, the health of Michigan. You know, they obviously got a running back back that was a factor in the game last night. The sign thing was a big cloud that was hanging over, you know, sign stealing was hanging over Harbaugh's head all year. And man, was he weird in the post game. Like he, he just was quirky and defensive, and you know, we're innocent. You know, are, are we gonna forget about the be, sign stealing thing in like five years? I, I don't know. It depends. Like you know, will they end up vacating the championship? But I kind of think we will, in the same way that everybody forgot about Cam Newton and his eligibility issues at Auburn. You know, like. The, nobody's taking away the championship from Michigan, but you know, I I don't know. I don't know what becomes. I know you've been on that sign. You've been waving off that sign stealing thing all year. Yeah, I've been trying You're to camp Harbaugh on that one. I've been trying to get rid of it all yeah. year. It's fine. <laughs> John Hell- Harbaugh was after. Did you hear him after the game? Did you hear his comments where he's like, "We did. You know, we're innocent. These guys are innocent." Every every and- piece of confetti tells a story. Like he's just being weird. He was a weirdo. <laughs> He's a strange guy. I also think it was weird. You know, they kind of – I think they planted a question in the news conference. It was a, It was the very first question, and the reporter asked, what did, what has coming, coming back to Michigan meant to you? And the two players were like, you know, this is the Michigan family. It was a big propaganda question for the players to talk about, you know, how great Michigan is. And I thought – it made me wonder if Jim Harbaugh was leaving and that maybe there's an assistant coach that's about to be promoted, maybe the defensive coordinator, and maybe they planted that question to kind of as a recruiting tool. You know, I don't know, but Harbaugh also made a comment. You know, he said he's at the big, big kids table now because he's won a national championship. And then he said, but I don't have a Super Bowl. And then he just kept talking. And I was like, he just said he doesn't have a Super Bowl. <laughs> like it's, it, it was weird. How about the Chargers for, for Harbaugh? What, what did you think of, of that move for him and if he uh, coached up Herbie? I think it would be good for Justin Herbert because I, he would not he would not put everything on the quarterback. You know, you've seen him coach teams that had great quarterbacks like Andrew Luck. He's, he's still going to try to run the football and play defense. Um, I, I actually think that's the better job. Everybody talks about the Raiders and Harbaugh, but Harbaugh knows it's a quarterback-centric game, and Justin Herbert's a really good quarterback, and I think he would fit into a Jim Harbaugh scheme beautifully. It would be a, it would be a nice development for Herbert. How much easier can Duck fans breathe today, knowing that Washington can't lord over a national championship? I think it was a silver lining for a lot of Oregon fans last night. I think... 
I think I heard from more Oregon fans who were exhaling, and they were a little more outspoken. And then I heard from a lot of Washington fans who were saying, there's no shame in going 14-1. and one. So that I'm not worried about that rivalry. Softy was running around the stadium. Um, I, I think that rivalry is going to be just fine. Hey, John, um, you know, with the whole airplane thing and, uh, you know, the, the airplane blowing <laughs> yeah. up and the phones falling out, does it change your mind on where you would want to sit on an airplane? Are you, if you're an aisle seat totally. guy or a window guy, are you not a window guy anymore? Totally. No, I, I was always an aisle seat guy, but I noticed on the outbound flight out of Portland, as I went to pick my seats, you know, you get, you get to the airport, you're picking your seat. Um, I, uh, I noticed that everybody was uh, taking the aisle seats. Nobody was going on the window. And then I got on a Southwest flight, and everybody took the aisle seats as well. It's like nobody, nobody it's, wanted to Isn't it a little bit of overreaction? There's so many flights that yeah. go out every day, but now because of one thing, I know. unless they're hiding it Still, though, you know, we all like to look out a window, but uh, you don't want to look that <laughs> closely. Yeah, just one flight spoiling it for everybody, Stephen. Yeah, I can't yeah. believe it. It's like the, it's uh, like the little brother spoils it for everybody. John, I know it's been a long, uh, long day for you. No complaints, though. But we appreciate your time and safe travels back home. And we'll look forward to having you back yeah. on the air tomorrow. Yeah, I'm excited. I uh, bummed that I wasn't, you know, able to get back in time for the show today. But uh, we'll be. Uh, we got a good show for tomorrow. Great show for tomorrow. Uh, hopefully, uh, the weather overnight. We got a little bit of weather to worry about overnight. Yeah. I think. Potentially. Which one but, more wrinkle? Uh, you'll you know? have a great show tomorrow <laughs> and uh, that powerhouse 750 AM, 50,000 watts, you know, platform. Uh, we'll be cranking tomorrow and we'll be talking about, you know, all those things that were born out of the uh, the end of last night. And I know that you've updated your word for the year, so maybe you'll update the audience on that tomorrow. So a lot yeah. to look forward to with that. So, for sure. John, appreciate I'm going to do that. I'm going to go try to get on a plane now. Yeah. So hopefully I'll see you guys <laughs> a little bit later. See you later, right. John. There he is, John uh, uh joining us from the San Francisco airport. On his way back, appreciate the time from the host and founder right here of the Bald Face Truth. Uh, when we come back, we'll take more of your calls at 503-417-7575. Plus the big splash. We'll talk a little bit more uh, Duck football with Zachary Neal, Duck Squire, USA Today in the final hour, and a whole lot of NFL. Because if you know there's one thing that gets me going, it's a little NFL football. And we got the playoffs, man. So me and Steven will be uh, talking about that as well. Junior newbie Stephen Vaughn in for John Cadano right here on the Bald Face Truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our thanks to John Canzano joining us. From the San Francisco airport, on his way back from Houston. A lot of uh, flight complications with uh, the Boeing stuff. So, But uh, he is en route uh, back home. He'll be back on the show tomorrow. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn, in for Gonzano. We'll replay some of the audio from John's appearance later on in the show. If you missed any part of it, we'll also have the podcast out uh, in a little bit as well. NFL coaching uh, uh, cycle waits for no man. Let's make this the subject of our big splash. This is the Big Splash. 
Brought to you by Killer Burger. Voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger's 10 rad burger builds will send your taste buds on an epic journey. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, the Tennessee Titans have fired Mike Vrabel after back-to-back losing seasons and decided not to trade him, even though he had trade value to other teams with a coaching vacancy. Uh, Controlling owner Amy Adams Strunk said uh, that she considered trading the coach instead of firing him, saying, quote, there was consideration, but there's a bit of a misconception about a coach's contract versus a player's contract. Coach's contract, you can't trade them unless they are a willing partner to that trade, unquote. And basically she's saying Mike Rabel didn't want to be traded. But now Mike Rabel is on the open market. And by the way, Mike Rabel, damn good coach. Not a bad coach. Coach that could help a lot of teams. Titans roster is poop. Uh, someone should hire Mike Rabel immediately. Maybe New England. We'll see. I was going to say, it seems like a real uh, New England move then to have him, you know, Belichick, damn, and resign or do something else and uh, Vrabel come in. And yeah. That, and that seems a perfect spot. But yeah, I was with you. It was a little, you know, a little surprising after two down seasons of the Titans got rid of Mike Vrabel. There must have been something going on in the background, right? It had to have been something else going on, whether he didn't want to be there or, you know, he was upset with something else. But I'm with you. He, he's a really good coach and he's got his teams to play so hard and so well. I mean, a couple of years ago, he was the coach of the year and the Titans, you know, are competing. You know, go back to where they play the Chiefs. Derrick Henry's run the ball all the time. And, you know, that run they had beating the Ravens on the road and how they almost beat the Chiefs like that. He's a great coach. I, I, I'm i with you. I was surprised this happened. And one seat in 2021. That's right. I, I mean, I, I, I think about their 2019 run just like you laid out a lot because it's awesome when a six seed does that in the manner in which they did. And then I was like, oh, wait, who got the one seed a couple years ago? Oh, yeah, the Titans. Joey B had to go in and beat him. But, yeah, I mean. And Joey B went and McPherson had, like, five field goals in, in that division. Pretty game. surprising that he got let go, huh? So my thing is, is it is on face value because, I, like I said, I think he's a really good coach. I love Mike Rabel. But they hired a new GM, you know, Rand Carthen, I think, from the 49ers. He was an assistant GM with the Niners. So he's a, so you got a little bit of an organizational philosophy. Remember when they fired their first GM? John Robinson, and everyone was like, that was weird. Uh, they he actually had some, outside of one pick, the, uh, you know, whatever the right tackle's name was, Isaiah Wynn or whatever his name was, like total total miss, Isaiah Wilson, I think. Uh, they had pretty good drafts and, and were known as a good place to develop roster, et cetera. You know, they fired him, and then they brought in Carthen, who I'm sure is going to be good, but I do think there's a ph- philosophical difference between Carthen and Vrabel. And Vrabel probably saw the writing on the wall and said, I don't want to be a part of it. I kind of get that. I kind of get that. This is a mutual parting of the ways more than it is a one-sided firing. That's what it seems to me. It doesn't seem like Vrabel, oh, yeah, I really want to be here, and now I can't be here anymore. It didn't seem like that. But we'll talk about that a little bit more and uh, the NFL at large in our second hour. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazano on the Bald Face Truth. B F F now, built by high-caliber millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the ball faced truth. We'll play some pungent audio coming up. Hear from Bob Condotto, Seattle Times, about the latest on the Seahawks. That's later this hour. Zachary Neal from USA Today, Ducks Wire. He'll join us in the final hour, talk a little... Ducks football in the wake of Washington coming up short and uh, what that means for Oregon and the rivalry going to the Big Ten. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn, we talked to John Canzano as he is en route back from Houston. 
a uh, little layover in San Francisco, uh, getting on the plane and coming back to Portland as we speak, and he'll be back on the air tomorrow. Some of those uh, travel complications with all the Boeing stuff. So you said that it would not affect your you know, seat selection, Stephen. You say you're just fine taking the aisle seat, and you'll always take the aisle seat because you've never been a window seat guy. So it's it, it's not much of a, a conversation for you, not much of a choice. Yeah, for me, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm afraid of heights, but I don't like them. Like, I'm, you're not calling them and asking them to hang out. Maybe I'm afraid of them. You Somet- might, yeah. Sometimes I look out a window, I'm like, yeah. You respect them. I respect it. I respect you, the game. You're not friendly with and them. And so, and then also me being a bigger guy, you know, 6'2", like, I need a little leg room. So I want to kick my feet out into the aisle, and, uh, you know, so that's what I do. So I'm not worried about it. It doesn't change my mind. And I also, even if I was a window guy, Judah, it wouldn't change my mind over one flight. It's one flight. You know how many flights go out every day? What's the worst that could happen, you know? I mean, at some point, something bad's going to happen. Uh, you deal with it. Move on. Yeah. <laughs> Got a good story to tell? No, but it... Uh, the iPhone I, thing is crazy. What you told me before the show is kind of crazy. Now, again, this no one can confirm anything nowadays. But according to uh, the article I read, some guy was out searching for, you know, airplane stuff because that's what he wanted to do. And he found an iPhone on the side of the road. He initially thought, oh, maybe some person just threw it out the window or a jogger dropped it out of their pocket. He picks up the phone. And it's in airplane mode. And then he pulls up like what it you know what it shows, and it shows that uh you know it was still in airplane mode, half a battery, and open to a baggage claim for Alaska Airlines ASA twelve eighty two. So either it's a plant, it's a propaganda plant phone out there, or it survived a sixteen thousand foot fall. And uh, you know what? If you're Apple, you're saying it survived the fall and you're doing commercials. You can throw. I want to. This is your new marketing campaign. I now want to throw my phone out the Pac West building and see if it survives. Yeah, I think that'd be a lot of fun. It reminds me of Michael Scott dropping the watermelon down to the uh, trampoline. Onto the car. Bingo! Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but how, but yeah. how amazing is that? Do you buy that? Do you buy that that a phone could fall out of a plane sixteen thousand feet and survive? I do. I don't know why I do, but I kind of feel like things just weird happen that way. Because, yeah, like, where did it fall? You know, a, pi- uh, a feather pillow, a nice, lush, soft meadow, uh, side of the road. You know, it didn't fall on the road itself. But, you know, it's kind of one of those weird things. I would have assumed it would have come in at such high impact. Everything breaks and it shatters and that's that. But part of me wonders just the physics of it all. Like, is there a way it could have just kind of landed softly and i'm inclined to believe that uh that it did it just floats it just floats they did it's you way down you don't know the newest i the newest iphone version they have wings that fall out they have they, little mini parachutes yeah they climb out the new otter but box apparently, has apparently a the guy who found it and posted it he had called it in and another phone had already been called in that they had found so wow they, so apparently there's been two phones that have been found um right in our own backyard right in their own backyard yeah I'm glad no one was, you know, injured or hurt or whatever, because I've also seen some in, uh, interviews and people, understandably, were scared for their lives. I would be, too. I would be That's shaking my boots. I would probably never take a flight again, to be honest. Unbelievable. Yeah. I would go the John Madden route and just bust everywhere with the horse trailer. I miss the horse trailer player of the game. Can we bring that back, even if we don't use the horse trailer? Yeah, why not? We need the horse trailer player of the game. Royce White. Remember Royce White, the college basketball player? He was a, Heck yeah. Then he went to the NBA and was, was afraid to fly. Went oh. out of the league. So what What did he do? Just went out of the league. No one wanted him anymore. Because he was afraid to fly? Yeah, he didn't like flying. Was there anything else up with him? 
Yeah, there, oh, okay. there's some other issues. I think, oh, he yeah. won, I think he's running the, he's in the political game now. I might be wrong with you this. You know who I think is in the political game, too? And I just kind of glanced at this in my email inbox, and I haven't really confirmed it. So here it is for the radio. I think Steve Garvey is like some Republican candidate. He might be Democrat, frankly. I don't even know. In California. Uh, so look out for Steve Garvey on your California ballots for something or other. I don't, I don't know if that's an actual thing or not, but... Uh, you heard it on the radio, therefore it's true. Aaron Rodgers style. Oh, Rodgers. What a what a wonderful human being he is. Your call's on Aaron Rodgers. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Hot take Let's, though, play a little punch it audio. Best sound from all around, but it's not going to include Aaron Rodgers. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Booger McFarlane was on the Dan Patrick Show comparing the futures of J.J. McCarthy and Michael Penix Jr. Punch it. Going forward, I think you have to factor in a lot of things. Number one, age. Penix is 23. He's got a history of injuries, two ACLs, shoulder surgery, dislocated shoulder. Uh, J.J. McCarthy has been really inconsistent. Uh, he doesn't wow you with the numbers, but he is athletic. He can move, and we see that that's where the game is going these days. I think the number one attribute a quarterback must have, Dan, is the ability to be accurate and throw the football where you need it to be. Michael Penix does that as good as anybody that's going to be in this coming draft. Um, but the knocks against him are what I stated earlier with the the age and the injuries. J.J. McCarthy, I'm not really sure he's consistent enough. Uh, last night, he didn't show us anything to change that. He only made two or three throws that, would, that you would deem game-changing throws or throws that you will remember last night. So going forward, I still would rather have Michael Penix Jr. I don't know if he'll be a top 15 in the top 20 pick. Hell, I don't know if he'll be a first-round pick. But I do know the one thing he does better than anybody else is throw the football accurately. And let's not take last night as a referendum on Michael Penix. He was under immense pressure last night. And it wouldn't have mattered if it was Joe Montana or Patrick Mahomes last night. I think Washington would have had the same fate because of the pressure and the defense that he faced last night. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd be willing to say if Mahomes was in there, it would be the same thing. Like, it wasn't quite the Super Bowl of 2020, but it was good pressure without question, and it definitely affected Penix, um, and, uh, and it changed the game. But it wasn't quite what the Bucks did to Mahomes and that KC offensive line in the 2020 you know, Super Bowl in Tampa. Uh, that being said, this was the best defense Michael Penix was going to face all year. We knew that going in. And we concluded that going out. Michigan came in with an expectation. They delivered. They proved it. Washington came in with an expectation of what they were capable of offensively. They did not deliver. Um, is it a referendum on Michael Penix Jr.? I don't think so. I agree with Booger there. But I always kind of was, you know, if you've heard me over the last few weeks, I've always kind of been a little bit lower on the Penix hype train, as it were, than everybody else. Only because, you know, I follow a lot of NFL draft people, a lot of, you know, uh, scouting people, a lot of people that watch film. And he, I don't want to get too nerdy with it, but he doesn't really go over the middle of the field all that much. And that's a skill that you kind of have to have to succeed at the next level. 
he was a lot of go down the field and gash you. And he was great at that. But at a certain point against better schemes and better dudes, you've got to be a little bit more diverse in your passing attack. And Washington didn't have that diversity last night. And really, they couldn't because of the pass protection. You as a Seahawks fan, is Penix or McCarthy a guy that you'd be interested in? I mean, you know, Geno's good. Like, we've talked about this. Me and you argue about this all the time. Like, I think Geno's all right. You think he's good. But if Seattle is looking to invest in a quarterback, a young quarterback this next next draft, is Penix or McCarthy a guy that you would be interested in? Um, Because you were maybe. so high on Anthony Richardson last season. Like, you were down with that. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like there's, you know, it may not be that way this year for, for you. Yeah, no. You know, picking five in the draft, a lot different than picking 17 or 18, wherever Seattle is now. Um, so maybe in the second round or the third round, I, I, I'd i have to go third round. I, I feel like there's better positions to allocate uh, draft resources than quarterback right now. Um, and if I'm the Seahawks, I, I like Geno. I think Geno, he's not the problem. You know, the people coming in saying Gino's the problem are the people that casually watch Seahawks games and are on Twitter. They don't actually know the game of football, and they're not like, and I'm not saying I'm an expert by any means. But the problems with Seattle, Gino is, I wouldn't even put him on the the top seven lists of, of potential problems. He's a very capable, good quarterback. Makes plays. Look at some of the throws that he makes over the middle of the field. Look, and to the outside the numbers. He's so good outside the numbers, and he's willing to make a good, aggressive throws. He is, his limitations are, are shown with bad pass protection, which is what Seattle has had in the interior uh, each of the last two years, and this year was no different. But even still, with that, Geno's a easy, a top half of the league quarterback, and it's not close. I think the way, and this year in the NFL has really changed my mind on this, you know, there's so many game managers that are afraid to throw interceptions or make a mistake and not throw the ball down the field. You look at the Steelers, Kenny Pickett, he's not very good in my mind because he doesn't want to make the play downfield. He doesn't look to make mistakes. You throw Mason Rudolph down there, he's not great, but at least he'll throw the ball down the field, and it presents a threat, and that has opened up the run game for the Steelers. Like, I just want the guy to be able to throw the ball down the field and not be afraid to make mistakes. So, for like for me, McCarthy, I do have questions about it. Like, is he going to be a guy that takes some chances down the field or at least with Penix, I know he's going to yeah. take some chances. Well, I don't know if McCarthy's got the arm for it either. Like, and I don't what, entirely that's why I don't, know. I don't yeah. know what he is at the next level. But, you but know, Purdy is one of those guys where he doesn't have a great arm either, but decision-making and but he also throws the ball timing down the field, and though. reads and just smarts is, is off the charts. And he definitely gets the ball down the field because of timing and anticipation and, you know, scheme. Which is great, but he's also very capable of it. But it's he, like it's like Russell Wilson this season, right? Like he yeah. had good numbers, but he didn't throw the ball down the field, and so it's like he never was truly a real threat. I, I feel like in the NFL nowadays, especially, you have to have that threat. Mark Spears was talking about the future of Jim Harbaugh, and he says Chargers job makes a lot of sense. Punch it! Oh, the Chargers! I mean, it's like as clear as day, and it'll be a lot of suitors for Harbaugh, but. The quarterback play, you think about him in San Francisco with Kaepernick and what he was able to do with that organization and franchise. And that's why he's such a hot name going into the league. We've seen him build programs in two different places on two different levels. And that type of success is not a mistake. It's not by happenstance that Harbaugh has had this level of success that he had in the NFL by going to a Super Bowl, but also what we just saw from Michigan. So to me, Justin Herbert is going to be the cream of the crop for a lot of these coaches. Look at other uh, coaching vacancies. 
you know, around the league. We'll see what happens with Bill Belichick and the Patriots. Nothing, no news on that yet. What do you think is going to happen there, Stephen? I think he's gone. I don't know that it's the right decision, but I do think that he's gone. I think they have to make a change there. The, or at least tell him that he can't be the final personnel decision maker. Like, that's, I think, where the problem is. Belichick can coach defense. He can go out and he can get really good defensive players in the draft. He can. He has never proven that he's be able to get good offensive players in the draft or really acquire offensive players, really, his whole career. Like, Tom Brady really kind of carried that side of the ball. So I think, for me, I would. I, I think Belichick's still a good coach, but they got to figure out someone that can, you know, talk it, get in his ear and, you know, help make the roster more sound and better on the offensive side. You also, I think he's gone. You also have the Titans vacancy with the variable firing uh, Chargers, Raiders. Antonio Pierce has to be on the short list, but I don't know if they'll actually go to him there. Commanders um, and the uh, Panthers and Atlanta Falcons all have coaching vacancies. The Chargers' job is definitely the best job, But we right? said that last time. We say that every time. We say that every time. It's something about the Chargers. It's like, oh, man, dude, would be such a great job. What a great job that is. I mean, if you love... It's like Anthony Lynn, Brandon Staley, you know, what are we going to do next? But I, what are Spring the, red Ken Wisenhunt. Yeah. Uh, Went Ken to a Super Bowl. Come on now. Hey, yo. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, what's the other job? I mean, unless you love what, Bryce Ma- Young. Mike but, McCoy wasn't available? But David Tepper's an idiot, so you don't want to work for that guy. Like, you know, so the Panthers, I don't, you know, that would be a good job. Because you'd have the bright number one overall pick and Bryce Young. Like, he has some talent. But you're working for David Tepper, who's an idiot. And, and they, don't, they don't have much... Offensive talent outside of right. Bryce Young. And Vegas. like, And they just fired their GM. Federer's like, gone. Like, Vegas would be a fine job, too, but you're also in the division with Patrick Mahomes for, you know, what owner? Years. What owner do you want to work for of those vacancies? You're going with Marky Davis, Dean Spanos, David Tepper, so whatever. Josh Harris, which we haven't talked about this yet, going out and getting Bob Myers to help direct the coaching search in Washington, D.C.? Probably that. What a fascinating one. Probably Washington. What did you make of that? Um, didn't Cleveland kind of try this Moneyball type thing? Is it Moneyball? But didn't didn't Cleveland do that back in the day? Yeah, they uh they went with um a guy from Minnesota, I think. I don't think it did. Are they still? No, they're still there. I think running in the ship there. I I, I just I'm what, what you say, Mike says. I don't think that are they doing Moneyball with Washington? Didn't I don't they think get so. the? Didn't they get the guy they did from the Cleveland? Cross, they did the cross sport thing. A baseball guy. Yeah, didn't they we get totally the, know what we're talking didn't about? They get, didn't they get the Cleveland guy? I don't know. Um, Bob Myers. I think Bob Myers is. A I really was thinking smart more guy. like you know he like I've loved Bob Myers and all of his media stuff. You know, he used to come on with Rome all the time, and like I'm a big fan of him and just his overall life outlook. I was surprised when he left the Warriors. I loved it when he was on TV. Yada yada yada. I'm like. Oh, NFL certain like this is more of like a culture leadership play than anything. Well, here's my thing with Bob Myers is he used to be an agent. And so I think that's a good sign that's what they want to do. Like they want to change the culture and they want to say, you know, put him as a face cuz he's a good face to like your program, right? Like And he, the new Washington Commanders owner, Sixers guy. Right, very So he knows Bob from the NBA. Very well spoken, very well liked by a lot of people, knows how to get business done. So I think it could work out. Uh it wouldn't be my top choice because I would rather stick to more of a football guy rather than go out and be think out of the box this much and get a basketball guy. But you know, he has experience just outside of the basketball game, like as being an agent just dealing with people and dealing with athletes on that end of the spectrum. So I, I think it'll be interesting for sure. I don't know how effective it is. 
Brian Windhorst, ESPN. Lakers are on the struggle bus, but what can they do at this point with their roster? Punch it. There's a lot of teams that are interested in calling the Raptors for Pascal Siakam. There's no teams interested in calling the Lakers for the players that they want to trade. And I don't know if they don't think they want to trade Austin <laughs> Reeves. Teams would be interested in that. That's the thing. The Lakers have to go through this homestand and figure out whether they're going to do something. But even if they want to, they don't have guys who have high value right now like the Raptors you know, have had over the last few months. So I don't even know if it's comparable. I think the Lakers would love to do things. They would love to be getting these calls, love to have these options. They just don't exist. What happened to the Lakers, Stephen? After winning the uh, in-season tournament, I mean, I'm ready to just... LeBron's about to have a season-ending uh, injury here. I'm sure of it. He's going to be sat down the rest of the season, and this season's over for the Lakers. They're in, there's no going forward here. Paul D. Potesta, that's the guy I was looking for. Cleveland. Yes. He's still there. Paul D. Potesta, because he was from uh, baseball land. Yes, he was. Uh, but the Lakers, yes. Lakers, I'm surprised. I thought the Lakers were going to be really good this season, one of a handful of teams that can compete for the title. But the way that they're playing and the fact that they have to rely on guys like Cam Reddish in their starting lineup, we saw him at Portland last season. Blazers I, legend. That's a negative, and that's not going to be good. So I think Windhorse is a little over the top here. Trades in the NBA, value for value doesn't necessarily matter. It's all about the contracts. Every player is tradable in the NBA. I think that's a misconception. Like here in Portland, Neil O'Shea kind of always talked about like there's certain guys you couldn't trade on the roster because their contract. That that's BS. You can trade any single player in the NBA. Some team will take a contract. I think for the Lakers, they're gonna have to find the right deal. We thought this last year when they had Russell Westbrook and they couldn't trade his contract. Well, no, they got really good players for him. They got Jared Vanderbilt and Malik Beasley who helped them get to the Western Conference Finals. There's a trade or two the Lakers need to make because they're not good enough right now. It just depends on if they can make those trades happen or not. They're out there, though. And I think it right now, you know, Palenka, Rob Palenka is going to have to find what those trades are and make a deal because the Lakers, you know, Anthony Davis, really good. LeBron, really good. After that, it's Austin Reeves, and that's about it. And so they need some guys, but there's trades out there to do. And I think it's a misconception saying that they don't have the value of the players because you can make trades happen in the NBA. It's a punch and audio, best sound from all around. We'll take a phone call, and then we'll talk to Bob Condota, Seattle Times, with a little Seahawks update. Let's go to Cam and Eugene. Cam, what's on your mind? Hey, thanks for taking the call. Thanks for holding down the fort for John while he figures out his way back to Oregon. <laughs> <clears throat> I, The thing that I came away with watching the game last night, all credit to Michigan, cards on the table. I'm a Jim Harbaugh fan. In all fairness, you got to put an asterisk next to that national title because he was punished twice in the season for cheating. But the, the big thing that I came away from it blinking at the television at the end of the game was I just didn't see Michigan was all that great as a complete team. Fantastic defense. Can't say nothing about that. Great offensive line. Great stable of running backs. No real threats as a receiver in the receiving core. No real threats downfield for the tight ends. And the quarterback is maybe a starter in the CFL. 10 of 18, 100 and something yards, no touchdowns. I, I wasn't feeling it. He was a game manager at best. But you see the difference in the styles. <clears throat> Washington's out there trying to use uh, small pass plays to kind of augment the run. And Michigan's just blowing it up. And i gotta, I got to bring up a name here that's not popular amongst my fellow Oregon fans. But philosophically, looking at what Oregon and the other Pac-12 teams need to do in the Big Ten next year, I really like, at least conceptually, 
the idea of what Willie Taggart was trying to do at Oregon, that Gulf Coast. Take the good stuff from the Chip Kelly era. Take the good stuff from the, the speed and the tempo and then mix in some down the field, you know, or not down the field, run it down your throat, you know, beat you at the line of scrimmage, downhill running. And we're going to need to have some of that because those little, you know, the little dink and dunk stuff, it's just not going to work in that league for the same reason it really doesn't work in the NFL. Honestly, I think that's one of, you know, we're talking big talking points of the offseason, questions for Oregon going into the Big Ten. I think I'm there. Stylistically on offense, do they need to change who they are or adapt who they are because of the competition? Something to think about. And I think an at-you physical run game may be a direction you might want to consider going as opposed to the RPO-heavy run game. Uh, 503-417-7575. If, uh, if you want to chime in on that. Get a little Seahawk update with Bob Condota, Seattle Times, coming up next. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn, and for John Canzano right here on the Bald Face Truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. All strangely quiet on the Seahawk front right now. Two days after the season wrapped up, nine and eight record, no playoff appearance uh, for Pete Carroll and company. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn, in for John Canzano, still making his way back from Houston. I'll be back uh, on the show tomorrow, but want to get a Seahawk update, at least where things stand right now, from our good friend Bob Condota, who covers the Seahawks for the Seattle Times, joining us on the line right now. Bob, thanks for making time. Uh, we'll we'll dig into the Seahawks in a moment. I know you have a background covering Husky football as well, uh, and we we, uh, we talk a little uh, dogs with you from time to time. Uh, what did you make of that season, Bob, and, and obviously the way that it finished uh, in a little bit of a disappointing fashion for, for Husky fans last night? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, people may be, they may be aware. I covered the team for 16 years. I had some good years at the beginning, but then a lot of weird ones in the mid. Covered the, you know, the entire uh, Tyrone Willingham and, uh, the Keith Gilbertson tenure, uh, you know, that kind of led to Tyrone and kind of all of that, the 1-10 and 0-12 season. So, um, you know, you always knew Washington had it in them to have a season like this to get to the national title. I mean, it's a very well-supported program that has, has a rich history. And, um, you know, when they've had when they've had competent coaching, you know, they've always been one of the better teams, obviously, in the West Coast and, and in the nation when things really break right. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not stunned that they would, that they would be able to do something like, like get to the national title game, but, uh, um, you know, that was, uh, that was a, a real interesting matchup, obviously, of a, of a Michigan team that just kind of, you know, kind of grounded poundish and versus a, a Washington team that, that, uh, that kind of preferred to do it a, a little bit of a different way. And they had, uh, you know, made that work for, for most of the season when they faced some other teams that, that maybe, uh, tried to challenge them in that way, but uh, last night I think that just caught up to them. You know, I think it was just a game where Michigan just had a bit more in the trenches on each side of the ball. Have you come to terms with, or does it make sense in your head, the Big Ten move with UW, Oregon, USC, UCLA, given your uh, your your long background of, of covering this uh, this program? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, uh, I mean, I grew up as a kid, you know, in the state of Washington, so going to games and, 
and all of that. So, um, you know, it's it's definitely weird just at the Pac-10, you know, the Pac. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the Pac-8, but the Pac-8 to the Pac-10 to the Pac-12, um, it's just not going to exist as we've known it anymore. Uh, you know, I, I love the old days of, of uh, you know, that they were all just kind of fighting for the Rose Bowl, and that was the ultimate goal, and, you know, get to January 1 and, and all of that. Uh, you know, that was a lot of fun for a lot of years. So it's bizarre thinking that that, that doesn't exist anymore either, not just for football, obviously, but for basketball and, and all that. It's just going to be a, a whole brave new world, and it's sort of hard to know how it's all going to how it's all going to feel when that when, when that happens. I think probably like a lot of people, you know, it's it's probably really not going to not going to hit you until until the spring. Really, uh, you know, when it comes to football and teams start getting back on the field for spring football, and you know, all you're talking about is is uh, teams playing. Um, you know, you're not you're not kind of you know you're not kind of making Pac-12 you know predictions anymore. You're you're uh, you're kind of making all these other ones. So it, it, it's definitely kind of weird. Bob Condotta, Seattle Times, uh, covering the Seahawks. Uh, Bob, and as you know, uh, you know I like rooting for this team, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, has Pete Carroll given his end-of-season press conference yet? And uh, if not, when is he going to do that? Yeah, they haven't scheduled it yet. Um, you know, the word we got yesterday was they didn't want to do it until everybody, all the media got back from Houston. Um, you know, especially a lot of the TV media and TV media that the Seahawks have, uh, you know, deals with in town had a lot of people down there. So I think, and Pete tends to do a lot of, uh, you know, it's not just the big thing they do with us, but, you know, because they, this is kind of the last time they typically talk for a lot. He, he sometimes will do interviews, but, you know, separate interviews that you'll kind of see maybe maybe later, depending on when they want to do them. But with a lot of the sort of the paying, you know, the media that they have deals with, uh, 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 kind of partnership is what I look for, partnerships with and stuff. So it's not simply just the thing he does with us, but, uh, you know, kind of kind of a bunch of stuff there. So, um, you know, that, that's what we were told yesterday was they were just kind of waiting for that. And it's and they've waited sometimes, uh, you know, for a few days in there. Obviously, I, you know, I think they're meeting with, uh, with, with the assistant coaches and stuff like that to get a plan for the future as well. And sometimes he likes to maybe have a firmer view of exactly what they might be doing before he talks to us also. It's another nine and eight season, but it definitely feels uh, a lot different given expectations and um, obviously not going to the playoffs. Uh, where does this team stand now compared to where they were a season ago in your mind, Bob? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I, I think uh, you're right. I mean, and basically they, they almost kind of have the same season in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, started out six and three, then kind of made it to the finish, had to win on the last day to try to get into the playoffs. Last year it worked out. This year it didn't. Um, but last year, uh, you know, perception, uh, perception and expectation can sort of be everything. And last year, people thought they were going to be a three or four win team, and so winning nine seemed like this huge, you know, this huge step in the right direction. And you certainly hope they could build on that this year. And they they weren't able to do it one loss wise, and, and certainly on the field as well. So you know, just you kind of look at their numbers, and it's almost hard to hard to fathom they went nine and eight when you look at the point differential and where they ranked in, in defense in particular. Um, you know, they they kind of had to pull some games out of the, you know, the rabbit out of the hat there with all those last-minute comebacks that they had. And, it's, you know, if you just don't have a couple of those, um, you know, the season looks a lot more different, a lot different kind of in the negative. Uh, you know, conversely, they're, they're, you know, what you heard Pete say, especially yesterday on his radio show, was turn a couple of those the other way, and then it looks a lot different that way. And maybe you get your 10 or 11 wins team and you're in the playoffs. So, um, you know, there's an awful lot of teams like that, sort of that middle, that middle pack of the NFL that, um, you know, so the Cincinnati's of the world, you didn't make the playoffs either. And, uh, you know, some teams like that, that uh, 
you know, they just, everybody looks back on a couple of games here or there that could really change the perception of the year. But but I would agree. In general, I think everybody thought, you know, hope this would be a team that could get to 10 or 11 wins and maybe, and maybe be able to do it in a little bit more of a dominant fashion. But, you know, they had some other issues. They, they, they sort of had some more injuries this year, especially on the offensive line and things like that than they had last year. Um, that I think played that I think played into that, um, you know, and, with, and just for games here and there, but with with guys like Jordan Brooks and Reek Woolen and guys like that, he got banged up at times. It just, you know, it felt it felt like a harder year to kind of put the same team out there from week to week to week, and uh, I think that caught up to him at times as well. Bob Condotto, Seattle Times, joining us on the Bald Face Truth. Um, you know, you've covered Pete Carroll for for a while here, and public facing. He's an optimist and will spin things forward and positive. What do you think his conversations are like right now behind closed doors uh, privately? What, what do you think is really going on in terms of, you know, the uh, the self-realization of the season and any potential changes um, that need to be made? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think he's happy that they're 9-8. and eight. You know, I think that, I mean, the goal, obviously, is to get in the playoffs. And, you know, that's really the goal is just get in, get in you know, because then anything can happen. I think they really felt like that this year. I mean, I mean, you look, they beat Detroit on the road. They beat Philadelphia. They, they, they were, you know, at the 50-yard line with a chance to beat Dallas. Um, you know, other than San Francisco, they played, uh, they played basically every good team in the NFC and felt like they were right there with all of them. So I think they felt like if they got in and got, got some breaks, that they could make a run. Um, you know, so they are going to try to figure out how to do that. So, uh, you know, I would, I would say that I don't think Pete thinks it's as dire as, as fans might just because I think that's, you know, I think he's pretty pragmatic that way about how, how close, you know, in a lot of ways everybody is in the NFL and that it can just be, you know, a thing, a, a move or two here or there that can really help you and kind of put you over the top and make things a lot better. But, uh, you know, conversely, he's very, very competitive and, you know, he's not going to, he's not going to want to just, you know, stay static and not try to do the things that uh, can, can make it work. Um, you know, the last two times they didn't make the playoffs, they got rid of one or both coordinators. So, um, you know, if you're just kind of going off, off that precedent, certainly there could be some moves. When people talk about Geno Smith, I, I, you know, I, I like Geno and I don't think he's on the short list of, um, you know, capital P problems uh, for the Seahawks. What do you make of all the conversation around Geno Smith compared to what Pete Carroll says? And I believe you know, truly believes about Geno Smith and him being the quarterback of 2024 and potentially longer for the Seahawks. Yeah, I, I just think it's inevitable. It's just it's just the position. I mean, people always just sort of put it to quarterback first. It's kind of the most obvious thing you see in every game. And, you know, if that pass, that pass doesn't get completed, you just inevitably kind of point to the quarterback and blame him. Um, I, I, I think by – Obviously, his raw numbers this year were not what they were last year. I mean, he's far below the numbers, and um, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of touchdowns. And some of that's because he missed a few games too. Last year, he played every single snap. So, uh, if you look at any totals, they're they're inevitably going to be down because he missed a few games. But, uh, but you know, even the percentages and the and the and the passer rating and stuff like that were all a little bit lower this year. But, uh, you know, how much of that is on Geno or the fact that you know they didn't the running game was a lot worse. So, you know, the whole thing of uh, depending on how much you believe that the running game helped helped set up things for a quarterback and you know they didn't have that to the same degree last year that they had last year and they certainly had pointed this year that would be better um and again the offensive line really you, you know they, they they had so many different combinations on the offensive line this year compared to last year and so uh you know i think there were some games where that really caught up to them too so um the only thing i, I would look at with geno smith is simply um you know his age and that if, if you're looking 
to draft a quarterback or something like that. I think you can do that and have it not necessarily be any kind of a kind of a, um, a referendum on Gino and what you think about him, but just more that for the good of the franchise for the long term. You know, if there's somebody really falls to you at 16, that that would make sense to do. But I think I think for the short term, I don't think there's any question that Geno Smith is. Um, you know, he's a, he's a more than good enough quarterback to to get to to where you want to go. Um, but, you know, again, I think 63 quarterbacks started games in the NFL this year. I mean, injuries happen. And, um, you know, if they, if they made a move to, to add a young quarterback in particular, that would not surprise me at all. The short conversation defensively with them is uh, they allocated more finances to that side of the ball, and it still struggled. Bob, uh, what can they do this offseason to fix it? Yeah, well, try to do more of that. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they do with some of the veterans they have. Obviously, everybody's been an awful lot of talk about Jamal Adams and his future. And, and you know, depending on what you could do there, you could maybe free up some money there to, to go in a different direction with that. Um, uh, you know, Quandre Diggs is another pretty highly paid veteran that, uh, you know, who knows for sure if he'll be back. And, and maybe that would free up some room for you as well, uh, cap-wise. Uh, but, you know, they will have the 16th pick. Um and, you know, maybe they can do something with that. Um, we'll see if they can re-sign Leonard Williams, but I would think that would be a real key. I think he played really well for them down the stretch. And, um, you know, I think you could try to run it back with that defensive line if if, uh, if you could re-sign Leonard. And uh, um, obviously with Draymond Jones, and I think, you know, they made some – they kind of shifted, you know, what they were doing with Draymond about halfway through the season. And we're playing him more as an end, and I think if they could, you know, they can kind of take that group and have it together for a full year at a training camp, and I think maybe become a little bit better up front with, with adding some guys as well, inevitably. And, uh, um, you know, but they are going to have some, you know, uh, linebacker is a huge question. Bobby Wagner can be, if it was only on a one-year contract. Uh, Jordan Brooks can be a free agent, so they're going to have to figure out something there. Um, you know, the quarterback, they should be really good, you know, with Witherspoon, hopefully Tariq Wollin would have um, maybe a little bit more of a, of a consistent season uh, if he has an off. You know, he really just didn't, because of the knee injury, he didn't do anything in the offseason. You know, he wasn't there for the uh, – he wasn't on the field for the offseason program. He wasn't on the field for training camp, essentially. Um, and I think that caught up to him a little bit. I think as a second-year player, I think he's a guy who still needs all those kind of snaps and reps, but I think there's some things like that um, that, that could help him with that. But they are going to have some questions with – um, you know, with what they guys they some highly paid guys they have and some high cap hits and and what direction they want to go with some of that. Would a change at defensive coordinator surprise you? No, I mean nothing surprises me. I, I just my view on coordinators is always it's, it's, it's again it's the easy knee jerk just change that guy. You know, they've they've changed their coordinators now three times since 2017. So you know, is it the coordinator? Is it what they're doing? I, that would be the one thing I would say with Pete is I think that's what he's got to figure out is exactly what is it that you, you want to do. They made, you know, when they hired Clint Hurt two years ago, um, to be really fair to Clint, you know, they changed a lot. They, 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 you know, they really changed what they do schematically. They brought in two other coordinator, uh, two other assistants who they gave a lot of responsibility to and Sean Desai and Carl Scott and really changed a lot of things they were doing in the back end. Um, and, you know, it was, it, uh, it was a lot of what they did was, was very, you know, kind of unpete like and not at all what they had done during a lot of the glory days. So, um, you know, I think that falls a little bit more on Pete to just figure out exactly what they what they want to do that way. I, I I just think it's it's way too easy to just blame uh, to blame Clint Hurt for stuff because I I think there was that was a real kind of overall philosophical changes they made with some of the stuff they do there, and I do think that's something Pete's got to kind of figure out is you know is that is, is he happy with that? Do you want to go with that route? Um, and if you want to go with that route, do you maybe 
you know, if you do want to make a change of coordinator, um, you know, are you just going to, again, kind of change your scheme and, and, go, and, and try to do all that, or do you kind of try to keep what you've been doing scheme-wise with the players that you have and try to, and try to hope that maybe continuity and all of that would help? couple last things with Bob Condota, Seattle Times. You cover all these teams because you, you see them uh, come through Lumen or the Seahawks going on the road. What do you make of the NFC playoff picture? Uh, start there, and then you can offer your AFC thoughts too. Who do you think comes out on top? Are, are we destined for the rival Niners back in the Super Bowl again, or do you see any real threat to them? No, I think I think they're by far the best team in the NFC, and especially you know saying that as having covered the Seahawks it, it was funny, I was adding up today, you know, when you talked about the Seahawks season, you know, they got blown out kind of four times, but three times they really just got blown out. And it was by the, by the two number one seeds, you know, they got, they got beat really bad by the 49ers both times and, and just completely hammered by Baltimore back there. And so it was impossible not to watch those games and just think that these are the two best teams, two best teams around. Um, you know, the 49ers obviously last year was just, you know, the quarterback situation and being healthy. Otherwise I think they would have, you know, I think they would have uh, probably won the Super Bowl if they'd have been able to do that. Um, you know, so I, they're by far my, my pick to come out of the NFC just again, you know, as long as they can keep people healthy, but, you know they kind of tried to cover themselves with that this year with with Sam Darnold and everything. So um, they should be in a little better position that way to to manage that. Uh, you know the AFC team's a little bit more competitive just because I think from top to bottom I think the AFC was a little bit better this year than the NFC. So I think that the, the AFC playoff picture could be a little bit more more prone to some upsets there. Maybe a team that could knock off Baltimore, but Baltimore sure has looked good. You know when they've. It, it, it seemed like this year when they thought something was a big game, like when they played San Francisco, they really brought it and played really well. And, uh, you know, when you watch some of the games they've played like that, it's, it's really hard not to say they're the best team in the AFC as well. So, uh, you know, and the way the playoff structure is anymore with the you know the number one seed getting the bye in the first round and the home games the rest of the way, um, you know, that's the kind of thing obviously that allows you to get a little more, a little healthier and, and fresher and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I know that's kind of the boring thing. They just pick the two one seeds, but uh, I think that's to save money right now. And last thing for you, you know, when we talk Pete Carroll and his future, um, it, you know, it's a hard thing to imagine him getting fired um, uh, by anybody, especially this uh, ownership group uh, with, with Jody Allen, Vulcan, and all that. We talk about him uh, a decent amount down here, obviously, with the Blazer ties. And the conversation down here is, is I'm gathering it's d- different than the conversation up there around the Seahawks. But what's the latest that you know or, or the read down there and the conversations down there about um, Jody and, and, you know, what kind of decision-making she might have the appetite for or just the future of the ownership in general with the Seahawks and the overall direction with that? I guess I'm trying to figure out what the – what do you mean, like, is she going to sell the team tomorrow? Or, yeah, or right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, as I've written, I, you know, I wrote about this a little bit today. Um, you know, there's the clause in, in the in the sale agreement with – it's not really the sale agreement, but when Paul Allen had the, had the stadium built here, the clause where he has to – he would have to – if he sold the team before May of 2024, he would have to give back 10% of the gross price to the city – to uh, to the government and essentially to the stadium district, um, and that was per the, some of the agreements they made when they got the public money to build the stadium. Um, so everybody is pointing to that as a logical time when, if she were looking to sell the team, that's what she would do. It. Um, Pete's contract, as as was revealed this weekend, um, the team announced it in 2020 is going through the 2025 season, but it apparently actually only goes through 2024 with an option for 25. 
Um, and so that makes more sense if, if you want to kind of buy the idea that if Jody were to look into selling the team, that she would start to do that uh, after the passage of that May date. And, you know, so that if you're a prospective buyer of the team, you know, she could sort of point to here, you've got, you've got a coach under contract, but it's also not such a prohibitive situation that if you want to go a different direction, you could do that. Uh, coaching contracts in the NFL are, you know, tend to be guaranteed, and Pete's thought to make about $15 million a year. So, um, you know, that would be that would be money that if you were selling the team, a, a, you know, a new owner wouldn't have to deal with, and, and they could and they could figure out what they want to do for the future. So, um, yeah, Jody has been, you know, a very silent, uh, a very silent chair, as I know you guys know down there as well. You know, we don't, I, I've never talked to her. So, um, you know, I, I can't say I know what she's thinking, and I don't know how many people do know what she, what she would be thinking. But, um, you know, there hasn't been any rumbling that she's looking to sell the team anytime soon. But conversely, again, that May 2024 date makes a lot of sense for why you wouldn't have heard anything until now. So I think it, it, it's sort of what happens after that that becomes much more of a kind of much more of the curiosity. That's good stuff. Uh, we'll read you at the Seattle Times, Bob, and follow you on Twitter at B Condota. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for making it. Sure. All right. Thanks there. a lot. Talk to you later. Bob Condota covers the Seahawks for the Seattle Times. That's an interesting, you know, timeline reminder. Um, on the potential sale of the Seahawks, and eventually it seems imminent. Different ownership groups for your Trailblazers and the Seahawks up north. Um, that's at least how it, I'm reading it right now and would uh, potentially get the biggest sale, I think, for for both, for any prospective uh, ownership group. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more NFL, replay some of the audio from John Cazano's appearance in Hour 1, plus Zachary Neal, USA Today, in the final hour, Chudanubi and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazano here on the Bold Face Truth. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Thanks for being here on the show. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Canzano. Just talked to Bob Condota, Seattle Times. Uh, we'll talk to Zachary Neal, USA Today, a little Ducks football coming up in the uh, the final hour as well. Uh, had John Canzano on the show in hour number one. If you missed that, you could find the podcast. Want to replay a little bit of audio uh, from that as well, including uh, John's response to uh, the physicality that, uh, that Washington experienced against Michigan Last night, he got to see it uh, firsthand at NRG Stadium. Yeah, I think the you know the Oregon offense to me didn't wasn't as physical at the point of attack as Washington was. Like it was really it was really interesting to kind of watch the line of scrimmage, and you could see it on television. But you know, I in in the stadium, especially in the press box, you have the view of all twenty two from up in the press box, right? And so you could see that those offensive linemen from Michigan in the early part of the game, there were some, there were some gap assignment issues. And, you know, after the game, one of the Washington uh, offensive or defensive linemen said that they addressed that in the second and third quarter. And maybe that explains why, you know, they kind of got stingy, but uh, there was a point of the game where I was really confused. Like, why was Jim Harbaugh throwing the ball? Like, you know, they were having so much success running the football felt like Michigan, if they wanted to, they probably could have won that game a little more handily. And and uh, I just think they were the better team the more I look at it. Do you think that could be a problem going next year to the Big Ten with a different style of play for Oregon, that it may be a little more physical than we're expecting it to be? 
Yeah, I, th I was thinking about the style of play. And even though the Pac-12 has got some teams that want to play more physical, like, you know, Utah this season wanted to be physical, and Oregon State and Oregon, you know, more physical, bigger players, it wasn't the physicality that we saw last night in that championship game. That, that was next level. And Penn State's going to have that. Ohio State's going to have that. You know, Oregon's going to need to be prepared for that. And I think Oregon will because, you know, if there is one team – in the conference that can recruit and and maybe some recruit some bigger bodies, it's Oregon. But if I'm Washington or I am UCLA or even USC, you know, I'm kind of looking at that game last night and going, gosh, you have to make an adjustment uh, with the kinds of players you recruit. Uh, junior newbie Stephen Vaughn, that was uh, John Cazano in hour number one. If you're Oregon, Stephen, do you feel like you got to make a, a little bit of an, an attitude change or a scheme change or an adaptation? Can you do that over one off season after you just saw what Michigan's defense did in the conference you're going to? Well, I think it's got to be a little bit of an attitude change for sure. I don't know that you necessarily have to change the style of player you're recruiting or necessarily even the style of your play, but you do have to get a get a little tougher, right? And I think Oregon still has the has the reputation of being a finesse school because we're up in the Northwest. Uh, and, and we still think of the Chip Kelly fast break offense. Like, that's not that anymore. But they do have to be tougher because in these tough games against these big-time opponents, they have struggled. And even against a team like Washington, they struggled with the physicality, just like John said, just like you said. So I think the mentality has to change. But I think Lanning's recruiting a different type of athlete where if he can just get them to buy in and be a little more physical, I think it's going to be different. So I think it's more of a coaching thing, and the coaches got to get them to be just a little more physical on both sides of the ball. It's really funny. It's, it's like a Mario Cristobal philosophy would, or you could argue, translate better to Big Ten football, or at least yeah. be a Big Ten type. I think so. Yeah. Than a uh, than a Dillingham Will Stein philosophy, but we'll see. You know, it's a fascinating next evolution of Oregon football. We'll continue that conversation in the final hour. Plus, the five at five, Junior Newby, Stephen Vaughn, right here on the Bold Face Truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. Now, built by high-caliber millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the ball face truth. Been a busy show. You can continue to call 503-417-7575 if you're a Duck fan. How relieved are you that uh, Washington came up short last night? How hard were you rooting against the Huskies? If you're a Husky fan out there and want to process your disappointment, you can. Coop fan, beep fan alike, we're here for you. You know, we like to uh, split the difference. I empathize with all parties. Uh, John Catano is coming back. He's still en route from Houston. Got a bunch of flight complications and delays with all the Boeing stuff uh, going on. He joined us from the San Francisco airport in hour one. Uh, you can find that podcast and uh, get John's perspective. He was in the building last night for Washington and Michigan in the national championship game with Michigan winning their first title since 97. Future of Jim Harbaugh, what's that going to be? And uh, future of college football, what's the next phase of that as they get going into an expanded 12-team playoff beginning in 2024? What does that mean uh, for the Ducks? What does it mean possibly for the Beavers? Can they compete for that thing it's going to be a heavy lift but it's certainly a possible one meanwhile steven's all over the five at five as always uh curious to see what makes the cut let's do it the five at five 
number one. I didn't know if I should wait. I know. That or not. It's always a pregnant pause. Uh, number one, Judah. We're gonna, we got there. We're going to continue talking about the college football season. It is officially wrapped up. Sad day uh, for that. Because we, you know, you and me both look forward to the college football season. It's over. Well, because we were making so much money. Well, that's true. Especially that final game. We were right on at Michigan. We had that. It feels nice to win one on the way out. Man, that's a good feeling to go. That's what they talk about. You win a bowl game, you get momentum for next season. We're going to be riding high going into week zero. It's going to be year. a good off season. Uh, well, season's of over. saving money. <laughs> season's over. Michigan beats Washington 34-13. Michigan running back Blake Corum named offensive player of the game. Rushing for 134 yards, two touchdowns. Michigan ran all over the Huskies. 303 Rushing yards on the ground. Mm. And then uh, today, for Washington, star receiver Jalen Polk announced he's heading to the NFL. I think it's going to be an interesting offseason for Washington. It's good. There's going to be a letdown. There's no way they win the Big Ten next year. There's no way that... Uh, who do you think has a better chance to the playoff? Oregon or Washington next year, Stephen? Man, that's tough because Will Rogers, you know, good quarterback from Mississippi State, heading over to Washington... Dylan Gabriel obviously going to the Ducks. I'd have to lean Oregon. I think Oregon. Mm. And maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm crazy. But I still think that Oregon may have been the more talented team than Washington, even though Washington beat them you know, twice. Better quarterback belonged to Washington. Better overall team belonged at Oregon. And you're just saying the better quarterback won both times. I, I guess. I don't know. I, I think that's, that's Maybe valid, I'm dumb. Maybe but I, I think Oregon. Quarterback happens to be pretty important. I think I think Oregon is closer to the playoff next season than Washington is. I think they could both make it, obviously, but I think Oregon is more suited to play against Big Ten opponents than Washington is. I'm really curious to see what Dylan Gabriel is all about. I got to dig into a little bit more of his game and what we can expect. The only thing that comes to mind is, and I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, that um, at UT San Antonio, uh, Will Stein's quarterback there, Frank Harris, left-handed. So he knows what it's like to run a scheme and, and play with a left-handed quarterback and all that. So I think that familiarity actually helps. Um, but at the same time, you know, Gabriel's experience, that will be a bonus. Uh, I know he's got some running capability. I got to dig into exactly what his running game looks like and what it is. But I think what we've been talking about today with the difference in style of run game, will that be something Oregon considers can they consider it? Can they apply it over one offseason? Do they need to? Or can they just use the scheme that they've been accustomed to each of the last two years? I know it's been different a little bit with Stein than Dillingham, but still like high completion percentage offense, get the ball to athletes, let them go to work. Your running game is more RPO-based than anything. Is that something that Oregon satisfied sticking with as their scheme going into Big Ten country? They probably are. I don't think they're going to develop an, like an quote-unquote you run game over one off season. I'm not sure that they're interested in doing that right now, but that be that will be something to keep an eye on because Michigan's defense is very good, Stephen. But so is Iowa's. You know, <laughs> so is a few of those defenses. Not that I mean defenses were good to the Pac-12 this past year uh, by and large, but I don't know. I get the sense that going on the road to Big Ten country, it's going to be more of a important thing to pack your run game on the road than it may have been in, in the Pac-12. Where do you come out on that? Yeah, uh, I, I agree. I think it's the defenses in the Big Ten are going to be a little more tougher, I think, and a little more physical. 
it'll be interesting to see how they how they translate year one because yeah. I feel like they've built their roster up where they're going to be one of the more physical teams in the Pac-12. But where does that rank them in the Big Ten pecking order? Because I I think right now you look at Oregon and they were pretty physical for the most part of the season. Then they got dominated against Washington in that Pac-12 title game. But when you go up against these teams week after week, I mean, how much is that going to wear down on you? Is the depth is going to be so important? So I. I don't know. I think it's going to be a very interesting season next year for Oregon. I don't know what to put them, but I feel like they should be towards the top uh, going into next year. Number two. Well, with the season over now, the final AP rankings are out. Of course, Michigan, number one, as they should be. Uh, Washington in at number two. Texas, number three. Your Georgia Bulldogs, Judah, in at number four, and Alabama round out the top five. Oregon, they were tied at number six with Florida State. Same amount of points. Arizona in at number 11 for the Pac-12, and that was it for the Pac-12 schools. Uh, you had Washington, Oregon, Arizona, Oregon State. They dropped out of the top 25 after their loss to Notre Dame. How about Arizona at 11? Wow. What who who would have saw that coming? Nobody, yeah. Frankly, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but that's the Washington team of this year. It's the Washington 2022 team, like the team that just caught fire and wouldn't stop losing, but weren't good enough to make it to Vegas record-wise, right? That's what UW was in, in 2022, and then they ran the table. Obviously, Arizona won't run the table, but fascinating to see, and I got to give you a lot of credit. You saw this early with Arizona starting to turn the corner. Um, I believe you had them beating Oregon State I had them winning their well. final four games, yeah. And you're like, they're going to run the table. They absolutely did that, and that quarterback change from Delora to uh, Fafita was one of the more fun offenses to watch. The Fish, Fafita, McMillan, um, you know, kind of all, all that going on. Boy, is, they were they were awesome. I mean, how high should we expect Arizona to be next season? Are they a team that can compete in the Big 12 with Oklahoma, Texas leaving? Fafita, Heisman Trophy guy? Like, they may be a sneaky team I next season. I think Fafita's going to New York. <laughs> Just kidding. There's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that still have to be uh, determined in order for, for that to happen. But I, I got to say, man, I think the it's sustainable what Jed Fish has going on. You know, I know I'm a Seahawks fan, but Brendan Carroll, Pete Carroll's kid, he is on staff there. He's the offensive coordinator, play caller of Arizona as well. Actually, not play caller because Jed calls the plays, but the offensive coordinator there. Um, I think Arizona, it's really fun when Arizona's good at football, I think, you know, and, and I think they can definitely compete in the Big 12. We'll see. Number three. Well, we've passed Black Monday for NFL coaches, but uh, we're Tuesday, and one more went down today. Mike Vrabel fired by the Tennessee Titans. And kind of a little bit of a shocking, shocking fire, and I would say. Vrabel, 48 years old, he's led Tennessee to four four consecutive wins after arriving in 2018, but then had back-to-back losing years these last two years. Uh, Titans finished 6-11 and this season. Other head coaches that have been fired so far uh, that they're looking for a new coach this offseason. Ron Rivera got fired in Washington. Falcons looking for a new coach. Chargers, Panthers, and Raiders all looking for a head coach. Patriots still haven't made a you know definitive decision on if Bill Belichick's coming back, but uh, some pretty good jobs out there right now. Some uh, candidates like Jim Harbaugh, where's he lands? You go to the Los Angeles Chargers. But uh, Judah, where are you uh, looking at if you're a head coach? Where are you trying to go to this offseason? Boy, I think... It's hard to turn down the Chargers, but like I said, we, we've seen this come and go, and whether it was Anthony Lynn or Brandon Staley, for whatever reason, they just can't quite get it right. Um, but if I'm Harbaugh, I look at the quarterbacks, and it's hard to get 
you know, excited about anyone more than Justin Herbert. Atlanta's interesting to me only because outside of the quarterback position, they've got talent. Drake London, Bijan, um, Algier, Pitts. The offensive line is good, not great, but Lindstrom is, you know, right guard. He's a pro bowler, even though he was a little up and down this year. I'm interested to see what, what Arthur Blank does. And by the way, Atlanta defensively wasn't that bad either. Jesse Bates played good ball for them at safety, and there's some, there's something there in a winnable division, I would say, in the NFC South. So that's the other job that kind of catches my eye. Definitely New England is just fascinating because of all the Belichick stuff, and I agree with you. I have a hard time thinking he's coming back, um, and Vrabel would make all the sense in the world, I feel like, to succeed him, unless Kraft is like, no, we, we need to split from the Belichick atmosphere completely and totally and go in a different direction. I, I think that domino is really interesting as well. What about you? Yeah, I think for me, I mean, we say this every year, but the Chargers' job always looks so good, right, with Justin Herbert. Like, you got the guy that you think can be a Super Bowl-winning quarterback, so I think that would be the job I'm looking at. I know David Tepper's an idiot, but if you believe in Bryce Young, that's not a terrible job either. You're getting the number one overall pick. That's not something that you have a lot of times, you know. So I, I think well, Carolina— they don't have the number one overall well, pick. Well, they did. And then Bryce Young is what I'm saying. Oh, I they see. Got, yeah. They had the, they have the number one pick on their team of Bryce Young. So I think right, right. that's one of those things that you get a young quarterback that you don't necessarily get that you think you could build a future around. Right. Some people are probably higher on him than others. So if you like Bryce Young, that's a division that's always winnable. Like, you know, if you really can get a good program going on there, that NFC South isn't very good with Tampa Bay, uh, New Orleans, and um, yeah. who am I playing? Well, Atlanta. Atlanta, yeah. Yeah. I mean – they got to make a GM move first. They fired Scott Fitterer, who was an assistant GM in Seattle. They brought him over, and you know Fitterer didn't get it right with Frank Reich. Because I, I, I would know. argue that you know Bryce Young is definitely the top quarterback you'd want in that division out of all the quarterbacks. So like you're you know he may not be the best at this point, but he. What has do you the, mean for next year or just yeah for next overall? season? Next season you overall, yeah, him I, over Baker and Derek Carr. Yeah, I wouldn't. Desmond Ritter. Well, please. Ritter, yeah, but I mean Baker actually played some pretty decent ball this year. You can get out of here with your Baker Mayfield propaganda. Really, you're that high, Bryce He's got some stuff to show to me first. He's got nothing to work with, man. Well, he needs players, that's right. for sure. I, I just think I, I would take Bryce Young over these other guys, and I'd yeah. run with it. So I think you can, if you can build around that, it'd be good. Number four. Well, John Morant, he had a great season this oh. year. Uh, suspended 25 games to start the year because of uh, gun issues. Couldn't stop flashing a gun. Then he comes back. Grizzlies actually pretty good with him. Six and 13, uh, or six and three, I'm sorry, with John Morant playing. Grizzlies were six and 19 in the 25 games John Morant suspended. But Ja, he will not be playing for the rest of the season as he has a season ending right shoulder injury, a labral tear in his shoulder, will require surgery, according to the team. Um, Grizzlies actually were making a little bit of a run in their division. They were only down eight and a half games, which is sound doesn't sound like it's very good, but it was a lot worse uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, looks like the Grizzlies are going to have a, just a bad season now. May not make even the playing game. They're four games back in the uh, in the Western Conference for the playoff berth, but uh, just a tough season there for John Morant, who is one of the most uh, exciting players in the NBA, also one of the best players in the NBA. You know, you, it's one of those things where you hope he figures it out and he doesn't start, you know, going off the deep end now that he's out for the season, has nothing to do. Like, you better not go on Instagram and be flashing more guns, but uh, we'll wait and see with John Moran. Yeah, I, I, I'm not hopeful that he'll uh, he'll uh, operate well 
to his rehab. We'll, we'll see. But you give a guy like that a lot of free time and disappointment that he can't play basketball and his background and all that, like, I don't know. I, I hope he's got good people around him and he'll be able to deal with his rehab. But I also know that you're disappointed in this development, Stephen, because you were telling me you were high on this team with John Morant to to do some stuff, and you had a couple future bets. Yeah, on I, I had a Grizzlies win the division bet that I liked. It was uh, it was like forty to one, so I was feeling good about it with Jaw coming back because they're good. Here's the thing: in the Western Conference last season with Jaw, they were second in the West. Like this is a really good team and a really good core of young players that they have when healthy. But John Morant, you just don't know about his future just off the court, and now he's getting hurt on the court. Just maybe one of those lost years for Memphis, but. They should come back next season strong because they got some assets. We'll see what they do in the offseason. Maybe they get a good draft pick, turn that into another veteran. But just a disappointing year, I think, for Ja, who you know, try, was trying to figure it out. It is, I mean, he's the most excited player in the NBA. Like, the way he plays is awesome. So it's a little disappointing. And it was just a practice injury? He got hurt in practice? Yeah. Just, uh, man, just, just tough. Man, that's brutal. Number five. Well, this happened yesterday, but since the uh, college football game is on, we didn't really talk about it. Tiger Woods. Him and Nike have uh, separated, ending their relationship after 27 years together. Once Woods turned pro in 1996, he was uh, Nike, head to toe, all the way. Uh, Nike was always, uh, basically the golf division was Tiger Woods, uh, but Tiger and Nike have separated uh, Wood said in a statement that he didn't say what apparel brands he plans to wear in future events, but he has been wearing FootJoy golf shoes since returning to competition from injuries after that car wreck in L.A. back in 2021. But uh, Tiger and Nike no longer, as you know, Nike has stopped making golf clubs. The uh, They tried to cut back in some divisions there to save some money. When you think of Nike golf, it's Tiger Woods, obviously. But, Jude, I know you're a big Tiger Woods guy. You know, it's just... You think of you think of golf, you think of Tiger Woods, and then you think of Nike, and you think of Tiger Woods. So like it's just one of those weird <laughs> things that's gonna it's gonna go away uh, for people around our age. But uh, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, it's been a long relationship, right? I guess. Hello, world, huh? <laughs> that's how he uh, he entered it. Uh, I you know, <sighs> times are changing. I know Nike's going through a lot of financial stuff for the last over the next couple of years. Like they are uh, looking to shed some salary as it were um and they've been talking about that so in the in the sports business world i'm not entirely surprised by this i know it was a long time coming but um tiger's been the number two nike endorser next to mj in nike's athletics you know history right i mean you think of jordan and tiger in nike i don't know who that two spot goes to it's probably lebron just by you know the, the length of the relationship and all that but um this is definitely significant and I know, you know, Nike, you still see it on everybody. Everybody still wears Nike stuff, you know? Yeah. They're still endorsed by it. So I think Nike still will have that visibility in the golf game without having the equipment and without having the Tiger relationship. But you'll they to them, they're like, everybody's still wearing our hats and our shirts because, you know, we still have endorsements with these guys. Uh, we just won't have the Tiger Woods stuff going in the TW line. That's the one difference between Jordan and Tiger. The TW line never really took off compared to the, like, Jumpman. <laughs> well, I mean, nothing really did, right? Like, yeah. nothing, nothing compares to Jordan. I mean, LeBron's did a little bit, I guess, but this is not iconic like no, the Jordan brand. Nothing, nothing's like the Jordan brand. So that's your five at five, five biggest things that you need to know. Uh, we got to get on the golf course when everything thaws out. I know we got a winter storm going on, Stephen, but at some point you and I got to get out there and 
hit the links in our uh, Tiger Woods gear as a you, as a tribute. You remind me of like a, a decent decent little golfer, like sneaky good. I don't know if that's true or not, but you seem like a sneaky good golfer. Um, I am a sneaky bad. I'm a sneaky really bad golfer. Yeah, maybe not even sneaky. Just I'm just really bad. Like well, really bad. I really appreciate you giving me the benefit of the doubt. Um, I, I I can be sneaky good, but I haven't picked up a club in about two years. So well, blame that on the child. That's a that's a child's <laughs> fault. Yeah, as uh, as my uh, good buddy uh, Lars Larson would say, don't blame the baby. He used to always tell me that when, uh, <laughs> when I had a kid. He said, don't blame the baby. Don't use your kid as an excuse. And I'm like, all right, Lars, that makes a lot of sense. I, I still do. I, I will always blame my kids no matter how old they are. <laughs> uh, let's go out to Don in Beaverton who's called in on line one. Hey, Don. Hey, Judah. Uh, and Stephen, I'm not a Blazer fan. I just want to let you know uh, I'm kind of a Blazer fan, but I'm losing hope on that team. I was wondering, in your opinion, when are they, are they going to start calling for uh, a coaching change if it continues to go downhill? I mean, he's been here for almost three years, and it seems like uh, he's got two more years on his contract. I, what, what do you see if uh, it just goes way south for another year uh, about the head coach? Do you think? You think that he's going to be here next year, or are they going to just buy him out? The roster and coach relationships fascinating. Neil obviously hired Chauncey, not Joe, but Joe knows Chauncey well. So, do you think that Joe wants to scratch an itch at some point, Stephen, and say, "Look, I muscled up, got my first Damian Lillard trade out of my system." Now it's time for me to muscle up and get my first coaching change out of my system. Uh, everything I've heard, they have a really good relationship. Like you said, uh, Joe and John, Joe Cronin and Johnson Billups have a really good relationship. I haven't heard any rumors about any dysfunction right there. And the players always seem to like Chauncey. Like they will come defend him. And even Dame, when he got traded, he defended Chauncey as being a good coach. I don't expect Chauncey to be fired at any point this season or next season. Um I would say he probably finishes out his contract, and then they'll make the decision. The Blazers are just too young, right? They're too young, and they're too inexperienced to figure out what exactly they are. The first two seasons with Chauncey, they were trying to lose. So he was a really good coach for that because he was trying to lose with them, and he went about went it with the right way. This season, even you can argue, like, they're just trying to make steps going forward. It hasn't been as good as we thought it might be or as we were hoping, but there has been some okay signs. So I'm not ready to give up yet on Chauncey Billups of being an average coach. He certainly hasn't been an average coach in his career, but I think there's signs that point to he could end up being that guy. So I expect him to be back next season. Um, I expect him to have another you know, one or two seasons to figure it out with this young roster, see if he can figure it out uh, with Scoot, Shane Sharp, Anthony Simons, DeAndre Ayton. Like, those are guys that he wanted. He wanted – they basically – you know, they have overhauled the, the entire roster from when Chauncey got here. Nobody's on that roster before it. Like, it's an entirely new roster. So I, I think it's a lot of Chauncey guys – want to see how that works out, but I expect him to be here another year or two. And John brought it up in hour one, but it's kind of interesting, the conversations around coaches and the time that they get. Well, do, I, we, do we give up on coaches too early sometimes? I also think the uncertainty with Jody Allen and the ownership thing is one of those things as well. Like, Chauncey's relatively cheap contract. Like, it's yeah. not a bad thing to just let him play it out and see what happens rather than going for the win because the team isn't very good. Like, why are you going to make a decision like that? I think it all ties in together with the roster, the ownership, the experience, all of it with Chauncey Billups. Yeah, I got to agree with that. And just thinking about, you know, like Arthur Smith with the Falcons. 
everyone's like, oh, he went seven and nine three years in a row. Gotta let him go. It's like, dude, the expectations were totally different first year to third year. Like they were growing something, and this year was a disappointing year, and now he's gone. Vrabel building, building, couple of disappointing years with a bad roster, first year GM, and now he's gone. You know, the timing of this stuff is all fascinating. I do wonder if sometimes, obviously as fans, you get a little bit of that discontent quicker than organizations want to move. But sometimes we do give up a little too early sometimes on these guys when the roster has to almost catch up to a maturation point and just an overall trajectory that matches up with giving the coach a fair shot. And obviously, right now, it's not really a fair shot for Johnson Gillespie. It's not as if if they brought in the best coach in the NBA, if Eric Sprolster's coaching this roster, the team's not much better. Like, that's the thing. This team's not competing for a playoff spot, probably with Eric Sprolster. So, you know, there's no reason to be like, you know what, we have to cut bait with him now and figure it out because – his, like I said, his contract isn't terrible. The players seem to like him. Uh, you know, you talk about you want to develop Scoot Henderson as a point guard. Well, Chauncey Bills was a pretty dang good point guard in the NBA. Finals MVP. So it's not a terrible guy to learn from. I think there's still some positives to keep with Chauncey before we're uh, calling for his head. Talk some more duck football with Zachary Neal, USA Today, Duckswire. That's next here on the Bald Face Truth. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn here on the BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. If you missed uh, John Canzano calling into the show, he joined us in hour one as he is en route back from Houston. He'll be back on the air. Uh, Lord willing, tomorrow, 3 to 6 uh, p.m. right here on the Bald Face Truth. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn filling in on this uh, post-championship Tuesday. Talk a little Duckies football with Zachary Neal, Duckswire USA Today. Uh, Zach, uh, how much easier can Duck fans breathe right now, uh, given that UW came up short last night? I think a lot of Duck fans probably got some better sleep than they were anticipating because that was definitely the result that they wanted. Um, I know that they were feeling pretty confident in that first quarter that it could actually be a quite a big celebration with it looking like Washington was going to get blown out. But um, a win for Michigan was a win for Oregon fans last night. So um, I know a lot of people had a lot of fun. How did it compare to what you expected going into the game? Um, you know, I I – I think we saw what I expected from Michigan. I didn't think that Michigan's defensive line was going to get such a push on Washington's Joe Moore award-winning offensive line and kind of get after uh, get after Michael Penix so much and kind of force them to be much more inaccurate than we had seen him be all season long. So that surprised me a little bit. I thought Washington would have a little bit more offensive success. But um, for the most part, I think that it – you know, that it's not too crazy from what we, you know, expected going in. Dan Lanning was in the building uh, last night. Uh, got a lot of reaction. What'd you make of the coach making himself available and serving as an analyst for his rival on the biggest stage against his soon-to-be conference foe in Michigan? Uh, and, and he gets a little bit of a, a national bump here on on, uh, on television. What'd you make of that? You know, he's he's just really good at kind of inserting himself into the picture at all times, isn't he? I mean, he, he seems like someone who really knows how to play this game. And he's this past year, we've seen him just kind of become more of a national figure. 
um, you know, with the whole Colorado stuff, inviting the, the um, cameras into the locker room pregame and kind of everything that's built out from that, too. And, I mean, I, I have no problem with this. We've seen Kirby Smart and Nick Saban, two of his former, um, you know, head coaches. They've done this. They've been on the, the championship shows and analysts and stuff like that. So um, I, I think he took a page out of their book. I think it's really good for publicity for him. It's good for recruiting for these high school recruits to see him and just kind of, you know, see his presence a bit more. So I like it. I was a big fan of it. Yeah, he's good, too, like you're saying. Like, I, I don't want to uh, start any conversations here, but in my, in the back of my mind, I'm almost thinking Dan Lanning's next steps post-Oregon may, may need to worry less and less about another D1 coaching job or an NFL job and thinking about TV. We were talking about this with Sean McVay coming out of last season, Zach, Zachary. I think, uh, you know, I, you can't give any too much credence to it right now, but being a TV, being an analyst as a young guy that recently coached, that could be an actual option for some of these guys, not not just talking about landing. Yes, I think that absolutely could be in his future. He seemed comfortable. He seemed really good at it. We know he's a very smart football mind. I think Oregon fans are just hoping that that's something he decides when he's, you know, maybe 55 instead of, you know, 43, 45, something like that. Maybe a little closer to Corso's age than uh, yes. than his current age. Uh, talking to Zachary Neal. All right, let's talk a little ducks here, Zachary. One of the things we were talking about uh, today was that physicality on display last night with Michigan having the advantage over Washington and uh, some of the conversation of, well, Washington just got a little too one-dimensional. Obviously, the Dylan Johnson injury doesn't help. But is there a style of football conversation to be had, a la what we had out of the 2014 title game uh, against Ohio State or the, uh, the the 09 Rose Bowl uh, with Terrell Pryor in Ohio State? And I know Oregon's a much more physical team and physical brand than they were in those iterations of a decade or plus past. But do they have that physicality that they need to go into Big Ten country and, and play some of these road games? Or do you think there's a conversation to be had there um, with whether it's a style or at least element to the run game that Oregon needs to commit to with a little bit more fervor uh, going into the Big Ten migration? Or do you think that they kind of like what they have and they're going to try to to leverage that against the Big Ten defenses they'll face? I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I mean, there's there's physical in the Pac-12, which Oregon was, and then there's physical in the Big Ten, which is what we saw last night with Michigan and you know, I saw a lot of Oregon fans on social media saying, oh, this Oregon team could have beaten Michigan last night. Michigan's not that great. And it's like, well, I uh, I don't know. I've, that's a very physical team, and I've, we've seen Oregon sometimes not show up on the biggest stages. So um, that would have been an interesting game to see between Oregon and Michigan last night. But, you know, that's that type of physicality is different. And while Oregon has been building towards that, we've seen the roster management that Dan Lenny has done over the past couple of years really beefing up the trenches, especially on the defensive side of the ball. I don't know if they're quite to that level yet. That's something that comes after three, four, five recruiting classes of building these dominant high-end four-star, five-star defensive linemen. And we're seeing that build towards that. We've seen them over the past several years get more of those guys and kind of stack those recruiting classes. So I think they can get there. I don't personally think they're there yet. But, um, you know, that's that when you have one thing that, you know, Oregon does have that Michigan doesn't have, they've got that Pac-12 offense. They've got the West Coast offense that can put up 40, 50 on anyone who they play. So um, I think if you can kind of mix both of those things and get the West Coast flair and the Big Ten, you've got something really cooking. 
Yeah, I forgot about this, but I was watching some uh, UTSA football when Will Stein got hired and was like, yeah, what kind of, what are we going to see here? You know, huh? Uh, last off season when, you know, thinking how, yep. how it might look different than, than Dilly Dilly and, and what will this Stein guy do? And uh, it just hit me, his quarterback there, Frank Harris, you know, experienced guy, left-handed QB. And I was thinking about Dylan Gabriel, an experienced guy, left-handed QB. Maybe there's, no, you know, Stein knows what to do with this. Uh, what are your early impressions of Dylan Gabriel coming to Oregon and what it might look like, the similarities to the Bo Nix offense, and any departures, or at least um, do the edges look a little bit different in the in the Dylan Gabriel picture entering 2024? Yeah, it's almost like they planned for that, knowing that, you know, this, this offensive coordinator knows how to work with a left-handed quarterback yeah. and a mobile one. You know, with Dylan Gabriel, I'm, I am excited for the potential he brings, but I'm very curious to see it. I know that a lot of Oregon fans see, you know, the upside he brings and say, oh, this is just a perfect fit to replace Bo Nix. You know, the offense is not going to miss a beat. I'm not saying it's going to miss a beat. I'm just saying I want to see it. Replacing Bo Nix, you know, a Heisman caliber quarterback, the most experienced quarterback in the history of college football, that's no easy feat. And so while I think that Dylan Gabriel can have an absolutely great career at Oregon or one season career at Oregon and be a Heisman contender, you know, I just want to see it before I'm writing off national championship in 2024 or 2025 for Oregon. Uh, but I, I like the upside he brings. He's got a really good arm. He's more of a, a gamer-style quarterback. He seems like kind of like that Vernon Adams type that's just kind of – it's kind of like the Bo Nix that he was in Auburn where he's just kind of making plays and making things happen, which sometimes can bite you. But – um, I think he brings a lot of upside to the table. I'm very excited to see what he can do. I can't wait for that spring game. Um, I think it's going to be really exciting. The transfer portal, you know, chaos is uh, unrelenting. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, for those that are kind of like casually looking at it and trying to remember, all right, who, who's here, who's gone? Um, let's talk skill positions like running back and wide receiver. You know, who's in, who's gone? Who, who do the Ducks have as of now at, at those positions uh, and obviously they're replacing some key guys like Bucky and, and Troy Franklin. So they brought in Jay Harris, who is a, a former D2 kid who, you know, nobody knew, even myself, who's someone who I, I like to say that I know college football. I had no idea who this kid was before from Northwest Missouri State. Um, from people I've talked to, this kid is the real deal. He's just very, very incredible. He's going to be a big part of the offense going forward. I know they're still looking at some wide receivers in the transfer portal, um, they got huge announcements from both Tez Johnson and Treshawn Holden announcing that they'd come back. They've got a very deep receiver room. So while they don't necessarily need a wide receiver in the transfer portal, they're probably going to add one just to get some depth there. Um, and then we can talk about the defensive side of the ball too as well. They've got some guys on that side that I think are going to be huge difference makers. Yeah, let, let's do it. What catches your eye on that side? Because I'll be honest, like, you know, I'd say Oregon's defense, good, not great. Um, but look, that Washington offense that they lost to twice is obviously one of the more prolific offenses in the country this year. So so what catches your eye defensively for Oregon right now? Two guys in particular. So one of the biggest, you know, flaws with Oregon's defense this past year, the past two years really, was in the secondary. Um, we saw the cornerback position be pretty good, but the Ducks are also losing Kyrie Jackson, their top cornerback to the NFL. They replaced him yesterday with a guy named Cam Alexander from UTSA. Uh, six-year senior, he's coming in. He was the MVP of UTSA's bowl game. 
very, very talented cornerback. They've um, got really, really high upside. They're excited for him. They also got uh, safety Kobe Savage from Kansas State, another veteran player with one year of eligibility left. Uh, really high upside guy, um, former JUCO player, a lot of tackles at Kansas State, several interceptions. I know that they're very excited about both of those guys, and they're going to kind of beef up that secondary. Both will probably be starters right away, or at least contend for those starting spots. Uh, but, you know, that's where they kind of needed to improve this offseason, and I think they've done a good job with that so far. As a Seahawk fan, I, I hear a corner from UTSA, and uh, I think uh, Requel, and you know, like, hey, you know, he's yep. long and just so fast. I have no idea if that's the template of uh, this new duck, but uh, eager, eager to see that uh, as he follows uh, Stein on the other side of the ball uh, back to Eugene. And then let's cast our eye to the schedule, uh, Zachary. I know it's going to look and feel a lot different, and who knows, there may be another domino or two to fall on that with that Hawaii game looming. But what catches your eye early as we start to think about uh, the first foray into the Big Ten in 2024? It's going to be interesting because we've seen the past years in the Big Ten. I mean, you look at Ohio State's schedule, Michigan's schedule, they kind of play, a, you know, all due respect, a two-game or three-game schedule. They, they get up for those games against each other, against Penn State, uh, but the other, you know, the depth of the Big Ten is not there like it was in the Pac-12. And, you know, the Pac-12 didn't have the, the talent up top, but you had to worry about your games against Arizona or Arizona State or Washington State. And so while Oregon needs to be focused on, you know, that game against Ohio State next year's huge at home. They've got Wisconsin on the road. They've got Michigan on the road. You know, I don't know that you're going to have to worry too much about, um, you know, I, I don't have the schedule in front of me or off the top of my head, but your games like against Purdue or against Rutgers, against Northwestern, places like that. So um, it'll be interesting. It'll be top-heavy, I believe, but in a sense I think it might provide a little bit less stress just because you don't have those track games that you kind of are afraid of every year like you are in the Pac-12. Zachary Neal, Ducks Wire, USA Today. Um, you keeping a side eye on Duck basketball as well? Absolutely. Just before uh, you called me, I was at Ducks practice watching Dane Altman and that team go. So they've been a lot of fun so far. They're, they've provided a lot of storylines. Anytime you sweep the Washington trip, that's going to get my attention. And, uh, you know, they yeah. were underdogs in both games, won those outright. So are we, you know, dare I say, are, are we – Talking about a team that's going to be relevant deep February into March? I think we really will. You know, we've got the, the mountain road trip coming up. They're going to go play Colorado and Utah a week from now. But today, I mean, I can report Folly Dante was practicing today in full. We talked to Dane Allman after the game or after the practice, and he said, you know, tomorrow's going to be the big day because it's their off day. They're going to see how he responds to actually, you know, playing five-on-five five today and getting out and running. So there's a chance he plays on Saturday, makes his return. He played the first game of the year, has not played since. That was in mid to late November, if I remember correctly. So he could get back on the court on Saturday for a few minutes against Cal. Then he could be, you know, potentially full go next week for that mountain road trip. And this team is really good without him, and he is an all-conference player. So I can't wait to see what they're able to do with those shooters around a big guy like Infali Dante. And, and what's the latest on Biddle and, and adjacent to that? What, what are your early impressions of how Mookie Cook has, has looked? Biddle is not cleared yet. He was at practice today. He's still got a wrap on his wrist, but he was in, you know, in basketball clothes and I think shooting around a little bit with his offhand. But 
Um, we'll see. I don't think his return is as close as Dante's, obviously, but they could get him back before March, absolutely. Uh, Mookie Cook, you know, we we haven't seen a ton. We've seen him on minutes restrictions in those couple of games. I like what I've seen so far. He brings some energy off the bench. He's really gave them a spark in that Washington game. He came in and had, I think, two dunks in his first four minutes as a duck. So that's always fun for fans to see. Um, you know, with the same goes for all of these three freshmen. They're they're spark plugs. They're really fun to watch. Um, they seem to like Oregon a lot. I think they could be a couple of, or a few guys that we see for at least a couple of years in Eugene. Zachary Neal, he's on Twitter at Zachary C Neal, uh, covers the Ducks for USA Today's Ducks Wire and the uh, Sco Ing Long podcast. Appreciate your time, Zachary. Always good to catch up, man. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You know when Ducks basketball is good, it just gets me uh, gets me excited a little bit because college hoops is one of those things where you know. If you have a good program and you're playing deep into February, like conference tournaments and and obviously the NCAA tournament, there's enough Oregon Duck basketball history in there to start like, oh, man, you think about 2017 and you think about some of those runs in 16 as well. And obviously, if you're a Beaver fan, you think of that ridiculous miracle 2021 run Um, and, and, you know, everything's starting to thaw out weather-wise and you start to hear the CBS theme song in the back of your head when you get up in the morning and you're like, oh man, college hoops. There's something to look forward to after the Super Bowl. Thank good, the good Lord we can be excited for college basketball. So the fact that the Ducks have big upside, Steven, and hopefully getting healthier, that makes me excited a little bit. Yeah, no, they're they're a pretty good little team, and you know, like the guest said, like you said, that's you know, they're not even fully healthy yet. So, you know, two of their better players are still you know out, but they're practicing. They can only be good. And uh, Jackson Shellstad, you know, Westland alum, he's been awesome Baller, since, man. since he started playing after his injury at the start of the year. Uh, he's really you know solidified, just you know, a really good solid point guard out there. So, I think this team is an NCAA tournament team. I think they may have a chance to win the Pac-12. I think they're that good of potential wise. And you're right. When it, when you have it start playing important games in the conference tournament, you know, into the NCAA tournament, man, it, there's nothing much more much more fun than that. And for me, like, you know, that's my favorite event of the year, the NCAA tournament. So anytime you get an Oregon team in there, uh, just makes it so much more fun. In 2021, was you know they were a seven seed, I believe, and that was obviously a COVID impacted tournament. They advanced because uh, the other team couldn't play. VC- VCU. VCU VCU got COVID, couldn't play, ran Iowa off the floor, ran them off. That was a lot of fun. That was a Garza team, right? That was yeah, Luca Garza. And uh, and then USC was just better. But that that was the Sweet Sixteen game and the Mobleys and all that. Yeah, and they were just better. They they really controlled that game. And then last year was just tough to watch, you know, for a, a variety of reasons. But man, you think about these teams, you know, nineteen. They won two. They were a twelve seed, I want to say, in nineteen, and they took Virginia to. That was a dogfight with Virginia. Well, Alden's a great coach. Sweet 16. Like, there's no doubt about Dan Alden Every knows year. what he's doing. Yeah. He knows what he's doing, and his teams usually play better as they get to March. So the fact that they're playing so well now and they're not even fully healthy, like that gives me a lot of uh, positivity coming out of Eugene that he's going to even get them ramped up even more uh, going into the conference tournament because that's when they start playing really well. We'll see how it goes, but uh, glad to know the trajectory is moving up for those guys. Uh, we'll wrap things up when we return. We'll hear a little bit more from John Cazzano's audio from Hour 1. And you can call in at 503-417-7575. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for Cazzano right here on the Boldface Truth.
You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. We wrap this one up. John Cazano joined us in hour one en route back from Houston. He'll be back on air three to six tomorrow. Uh, talk to Bob Condota for a little update on this first off season of Seahawk football and what Pete Carroll has in front of him. And then Zachary Neal, USA Today Duckswire, gave us an Oregon football update uh, post UW uh, as national runners up. You can find the podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn, in for Cazano. Uh, Sean and Sandy's on the line. Wants to talk a little NFL. Hey, Sean. Hey, Judah. I don't think America's too happy to see John Harbaugh win the championship. And uh, this whole thing with the cheating thing, I think that's lame. I've been hearing a lot about him maybe going to the NFL. And if he does, I hope he goes to a team with a culture of cheating and scandals. And it's the New England Patriots. So I haven't heard anybody talk about that, but I've been hearing things about you know, the hoodie leaving there. And, you know, think what happens when Harbaugh goes there, brother. Have a great day. It makes a lot of sense. You know, cheating coach with cheating culture, Harbaugh to the Patriots, book it. Um, I think that's kind of funny. But also, that we're not, we aren't talking about that as much. Any chance, should Belichick leave, which I think he does, Harbaugh to the Patriots. Well, here's my thing is – I don't think Harbaugh's going to go to a team that can't be competitive. And I don't think the Patriots can be competitive next season. Can they? You want him to go to a, a team that's competitive year one? Yeah. Herbert. Herbert. Yeah. Even, even the Raiders. I could say the Raiders. Like, you could say that they can compete for a playoff spot against the Chargers. Because no, where Chargers. are they going to pick? Three? Patriots at three or four? Against the Chargers, against the, uh, you know, the Broncos. Like, you can compete in that division. I know the Chiefs are going to be really good, but... I don't know. I think the Raiders, you could even do it. I could see even, you know, a team like Washington. Like, they can compete in that division. Not like the Eagles or the Cowboys are going to be a dominant team. The Cowboys choke in every big spot they've ever had, like, the last 20 years. So, I, I, I just don't think that Harbaugh wants to go and coach a rookie quarterback, and I don't think Bailey Zappi or Mac Jones are the guys. So, hmm. for me, like, yeah, I think it would be a good fit because – Harbaugh has that, you know, he could be strict. He could be, he's kind of a Patriots guy, it seems like. But, but they're picking third. You know, could they get a quarterback there, like a Jaden Daniels? Is he good enough to win it? I don't mean, I don't know. Some people think that it's going to go Caleb, Drake, Jaden Daniels. One, two, three. I, not I, not I there not, yet? I would not be. With the reigning husband winner? I would not be on board with that. Put but, some respect on his name. But, no, I mean, it could be. It could be. So, I don't know. I just don't. I think it's funny. It's funny. You know, it's the cheaters go the cheaters. I think, no. I think in theory, actually, it's a really good fit, but... The fact that I don't think they can be competitive year one in that division, especially if Rodgers comes back, like, I don't know, I can't see Harbaugh going there. So the non-Patriot, non-Charger player for Harbaugh in your mind would be who? The what? Sorry. The, the Non-Chargers, non-Patriots. What, if I, I mean, Harbaugh, the Chargers, I think the front yeah. runners, but, I you think, know, what if he pulls a curveball? I think Washington. You say Washington? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. If he wants to go to, unless he wants to stay towards the West, it's Vegas, but I can see Washington just putting out so much money for that guy. Josh Harris trying to become, you know, the, you know, get rid of the stench of Daniel Snyder, start over. Like, I could see that. I mean, Bob Myers going out and getting Jim Harbaugh. They probably know each other from the Bay Area days. 
That makes sense. I can see that. Like from I, the top it rope. would just be money wise. Just it would be an <laughs> insane amount of money. Appreciate you guys being here. Find the podcast of the show if you missed it at all. John Cazano, Bob Condota, and Zachary Neal. It's good to go out on a high note from the national title game. Uh, Steve and I both pretty much nailed the uh, national title prediction. Michigan to win and cover and dominate on the ground. All those things came to pass, which means it's the last college football bet we're ever going to win because that's how those things go. But into 2024, we go in Big Ten country with it. Appreciate you being here. Cazano, back tomorrow on the Bald Face Truth.